Kunite! No, no, no! ¡Alawa! ¡Kunite! Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff on the docket for today. We uh, meant to record this one last week, got a little busy, but I think it's still relevant. Uh, We're going to talk about Daredevil, the Netflix TV series. We mentioned that on last week's show and neither of us had gotten around to it and then both of us got around to it really fast. Yeah, yeah. As I think a lot of you probably did. So, two weeks, I think everyone's probably had time to watch it, which is good. Mm-hmm. All 13 episodes. They go by pretty fast, considering... Surprising, considering they feel basically a full hour for all of them. Yeah, yeah. Which so is it's basically like a 13 hours worth of content, which right. is pretty substantial. Yeah, so we will talk about all of that uh, really quickly. I mean, when we get there, this will be like when we talk about any other movie, because this is kind of like talking about a 13-hour movie, since it's all yeah. out there at once. Uh, we'll do the spoiler take later on, but I guess let's just start here, Sean. Spoiler-free take on Daredevil. I thought it was fucking awesome. Like, I was not planning on watching it, like, binge-watching it the way I did immediately. Yeah. But as soon as I started watching it, I just couldn't stop. I think their their take on Daredevil as a character is fantastic. Like, him and his supporting cast are really well-realized and very interesting and fully developed characters. And then also their version of the Kingpin, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, I think is fucking amazing. Is like maybe the best, probably the best villain in the Marvel sort of cinematic scope right now. His only competition is really Loki. Well, we will definitely have that conversation, I think, because that's an interesting one. No, I agree with most of that. I think, you know, if you like the Marvel movies, Daredevil does some things differently, but in terms of tone, certainly. But overall, I think it's very much of a piece with the strengths of what that, you know, series does, as well as some of the weaknesses. I I think it peters out at the end for me, but... Really, really good series. Definitely one of the better Netflix originals. And I think of all the Netflix originals I've seen, probably the one best built and suited for binge watching. Like, mm-hmm. they think they really, they knew they were on Netflix. This doesn't feel like a show that was just made for cable that is on Netflix, like House yeah. of Cards or Orange is the New Black, where I might even prefer to watch some of those shows week to week. This was, we know you're going to watch this in 13 hours. It's built for that, and it works really well. Yeah. So definitely, if you have Netflix, watch Daredevil. If you don't have Netflix, it's only eight bucks. So you know, yeah. fuck it, get paid bucks and watch Daredevil. Yeah. Like seriously, even if you don't use like Netflix for anything else, if yeah. you just get a month and watch Daredevil. Like that's a really good price for it. You know? Netflix is such a weirdly good deal. It kind of makes me hate the whole company because sure, it's like you it's... can't not have it. It's like... yeah. It's like even when I go like two months without really watching anything on Netflix, you still look at it and it's like. It just doesn't make sense not to get it because right. even if I watch like one movie in the month, it's still basically worth the price. You know? Yeah, because if you're going to rent one of those movies digitally now, that's so expensive now. Yeah. Anyway, there's our plug for Netflix. So we will talk about Daredevil in depth later on the show. Uh, otherwise, last two weeks, this is going to be a very movie and TV heavy episode. I don't yeah. think we've had one of those in a while. Um, you know, there was the Star Wars celebration last week and the Star Wars Episode Seven trailer. News about Rogue One and some other stuff going on, so we want to talk about that. And then I think on the flip side, in a lot of ways, Warner decided that was also the right time to start revealing stuff from Batman v Superman, from Suicide Squad, some interesting stuff there. A couple other little movie trailers, different video game things, so 
We'll get into all of that uh, later. First off, Sean, any yes. just random stuff going on you want to talk about? Uh, not really. I, I picked up the uh, remastered version of GTA V that came out a while ago on PS4. Mm-hmm. Just because like, I wanted something to play. And that game is still really fucking good. I'm, I'm having fun playing it again, and I really like the first-person mode. Yeah. It's fun to sort of like get back at it. I really haven't replayed the campaign, because I have it on Xbox One. But I really, now that they've kind of <laughs> fixed it from the abhorrent state it launched in, mm-hmm. GTA Online is really fun. And that's mostly what I play. I, I like GTA Online. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that. And I definitely like the remastered version more. Just that game clearly needed this level of visual polish, yeah, I think. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Oh, it's gorgeous. The sunsets and stuff. Mm-hmm. Today I was just in a helicopter and I parachuted like at dusk. It was beautiful. It was nice. great. Yeah, and, and then it I has, hit a crane and died. Yeah, it has some of like the best weather effects I think I've ever seen yeah. in a video game. Like when it's very rare, but every once in a while there'll be like a lightning thunderstorm. The effects on the thunderstorm is fucking amazing. Like yeah. I've never seen a video game capture like like just the lighting effects in the clouds. It's really spectacular. I am slightly disappointed though that I got it on Xbox One and didn't just wait for the PC version because my PC mm-hmm. could run it. And good God, it looks gorgeous. Yeah, but I don't want to pay a, a third sixty dollars yeah, for yeah. this game. But yeah, no GTA Five, it's good. Yeah, I don't really have any stuff to talk about. I'm going to go to two of these things on the outline right here. Okay. In terms of gaming stuff from this last week, I've been back into Super Smash Bros. for Wii U, just for a variety of reasons. Just kind of playing it to kill time in between stressing out over uh, essays that are going to give me a brain hemorrhage by the end of next week. So this could be the end of the Weekly Stuff podcast. Anyway. Thank God. <laughs> check this off of my life. Uh, but but within that, also, they gave to Club Nintendo members, which they had promised earlier, the Mewtwo DLC. So if you had bought both the Wii U and 3DS version of Super Smash Brothers for Nintendo 3DS and Wii U... Yes. Why can't they have a better name? Anyway... It's Nintendo. I know. So they gave you the download code for Mewtwo. This is the first time there's ever been DLC in Smash Bros. Works very seamlessly... Except I was slightly disappointed. They just stuck Mewtwo onto the end of the roster. So he does he isn't up with the other Pokemon. Oh. Huh. And it also messes it up where now Link is on a different row than the other Zelda characters. It just it, the roster looks a little oh. weird. But I think it will be refixed when they add Lucas in later. So who knows? Maybe that's yeah. their master plan. But yeah, you know, Mewtwo, it's it's cool he's in there, you know. They, they he didn't come with his own stage or anything, it's just the character. And he plays very much like you remember him playing in Brawl or uh, Melee. Melee. Yeah. Obviously adjusted for the Wii U and 3DS controls, but you know he's got that same kind of floaty effect. He mind powers all his items, like Shadow Ball. I yeah. don't remember most of his moves, but I remember that. Yeah, Shadow Ball's cool. So he's cool. It's nice to have him there. Uh, definitely was like a little burst of nostalgia, just because I realized, man, I, I Mewtwo hasn't been in one of these for a long, long, long time, yeah. like 15 years at this point. So. That was kind of interesting to have him back. And then there was a much bigger DLC thing in Mario Kart 8, which I'd already paid for because I had the season pass, or whatever they called it. I don't think they called it a season pass, but whatever it was called. And this was the second pack came out this week, and it was the Animal Crossing pack, um, which, as with the other pack, which was the Zelda pack, you don't have to necessarily like that series to like the pack. There's a mm-hmm. small amount of Animal Crossing stuff in it, but it would appeal to all parts of the Mario Kart audience, so you get Villager and Isabel from Animal Crossing, and then Dry Bowser, which is the Dry Bones version of mm. Bowser. Ironically, Dry Bones himself, still missing in action from Mario Kart 8. Huh. I don't quite get that. Yeah, because he was in, like... Most of them. Yeah, like, Double Dash, I think, was, like, the first one. Yeah, and he's in... 
DS, and he was one of my favorite racers in DS. I raced as him all the time. So I miss Dry Bones. Dry Bowser looks cool. There's a cool lighting effect where he's got lava pulsing through the skeleton. Mm. So that was fun. Um, and then you get eight new tracks, two Grand Prix. So, I mean, it's a great deal in terms of DLC. It's like an eight-buck pack, and it's really good. Definitely better than the Mewtwo DLC, which if you didn't get the code, is $4 yes. for one character. Jeez. So, you know... Differences. Nintendo is doing really good on the DLC pricing here. Well, not so much over here, but yeah. we'll see. The um, DLC pricing is always it's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Well, and and anyway, so Mario Kart. I mean, it's a ton of content you get. I like all the new tracks, some more than others. Although there are some really inventive and creative ones here. Definitely, the best tracks in Mario Kart Eight are in the two DLC packs. I think it's almost like when sometimes you would get the best map packs in a Halo DLC mm-hmm. because they would just all they have to do is make that map. Yeah, yeah, and they could put a lot of creativity into that. And I'm definitely feeling that here too. So it's fun. I, I actually hope they keep that up with Mario Kart Eight because it gives this game a certain amount of longevity. Not just coming back to it for DLC, but when you do come back to it, you have significantly more content. So that's a good idea for that, I think. And. We'll see what they do with Smash Brothers. The roster is already on the verge of being, you know, there's like 51 fighters at this point. So I don't know if there's that many they can feasibly add. Yeah. But it's like, at what point is like that character select screen? Like you just can't even see the pictures on the squares anymore because it's just, they're so squished. Or man, what if they have to do what they would do? Like there's that period in Dragon Ball fighting games where you would have like 128 characters. Yeah. And I think they would just do it as a wheel or something. Yeah. And it was yeah. really unwieldy because... There's too many fighters. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully Smash Bros. doesn't get to that point. But yeah. So that's all the video game stuff I have. So if there's nothing else, let's move on. All right. Then let's go ahead and... Okay, I'm going to reverse this just because I'm too eager and I want to get to it. We're going to throw this out of whack a little bit. All right. Can we make fun of Jared Leto's Joker thing? Yeah, I mean... I I, I need to get that off my chest. Yeah, Yeah. we need to... We need to address this. Should it, I bring the picture up, or can do we not want to see it? Uh, bring it up. Bring, bring it up. up. Like okay. I've seen it a lot because I don't want to look at it. Yeah. But all right. So we're we're skipping around a little bit. We'll get to Batman v Superman and all that. But if you haven't been online, because this has just been everywhere and it's annoying. Um, Jared Leto and the director of Suicide Squad, the upcoming DC 2016 movie, David Ayer. Uh, has been tweeting different pictures of Jared Leto in preparation for the Joker. So first we saw him, like, cutting his hair, and then we saw him dyeing his hair, and then we saw him walking a puppy with a purple glove or something. Yeah. And it was just weeks and weeks and weeks of cock teasing. Like, yeah, like, kind of blurry, off-center photos yeah. that, like... He held a camera once. Yeah. Yeah. And people extrapolated way too much from that. And then finally, last night, we got this terrifying picture yeah. of a juggalo... Who they call the Joker. Yeah. And he's tattooed and he's got a grill and he looks crazy and he doesn't really look like the Joker at all. But, Sean, your reaction? It's dumb. Like, it's just really dumb. And I appreciate how dumb it is in the sense that, like, it's basically just became a meme more like instantly <laughs> of people, like, photoshopping him yep. into it's so different great. photos and stuff. I have, like, one comment on Twitter that I read that I thought was amazing was that someone said this, like, this new Joker's origin is he fell into a vat of Hot Topic, which is basically, <laughs> it's basically exactly what he looks like. He's just got, like, these the stupid tattoos and, like, oh, he has the one purple glove. And I mean, it yeah. was so great. I got this 
yesterday I was actually in a tutoring session. I was tutoring someone, and they were working on, I'd given them, like, you know, do these 20 math problems or something. And so I was checking Twitter, and this came out, and my Twitter feed was just filled with great jokes yeah. about this. And I was struggling not to laugh because I didn't want to distract the student, but it was like, like, that was the best part of this. It's like, okay... I'm not interested in this movie anymore, but yeah. fuck it. The jokes are fucking worth it. Is, I mean, is this real? Or is this like an April Fool's prank that came out, you know, 24 days too late? I mean, it's obviously real. Like, it seems exactly a thing that some, like, a DC yeah. movie would have. Is some stupid fucking, looks like, ripped from some, like, dumb, like, offshoot 90s comic or something version of the Joker. Like, it just looks so dumb. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. So, obviously, you can't judge things just by a picture, no. and the performance could still be really good, and there could be a great story in this movie could be really good. I think it's still got an interesting cast and all that, interesting director. So, who knows? We will reserve judgment on all of that until 2016. But, with that warning out of the way, yeah. let's pick this apart and explain why it's stupid. Sure, okay. I'm going to go first yeah. to the thing that just, at first, made me pissed off before I realized it was funny. Damaged. Yeah. He is not the Joker. He is a hipster who hates his rich parents and thinks his life yeah. is awful and has tattooed himself to show that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is, it's the tattoos specifically yeah. that are... Like, it, it's a thing that... I feel like it's, it's a general rule in character... In, like, good character design is that you make the character look how the character would make themselves look. And it's one of the things yeah. that it's like... You know, when you're looking at a lot of, like, old female superhero costumes, or even some modern female superhero costumes, and how, like, how tight they are, and, like, how clearly uncomfortable and useless the costume would be, like, that's the rule you follow in sort of judging it as, like, this character would never dress up this way, this character would never choose to look this way, this is just something that, like, the artist or whoever was involved creating the character thought would look cool, but does not follow naturally with, like, the character as a person, and that's exactly when you look at the tattoos on the Joker where he has, like, the ha-ha-ha-ha-ha on him and stuff. It's like, the Joker, unless they're going for some, like, weird, crazy postmodern interpretation of the character, like, the Joker would never put that on himself. Like, he would never tattoo ha-ha-ha-ha-ha yeah. on himself in the font of, like, how it's usually used in the comics when it's just, like, a big splash page of the Joker cackling maniacally. Like, it's that exact same kind of font. And it's, like, really self-referential. Like, the damage on the forehead is the same thing. It's like, the Joker would never, ever put that on himself. That is something that someone else would put on the Joker, you know? Just in case we, we missed the point, right? Yeah. The, you can't let them miss the subtlety. This guy is the Joker, so he has ha-ha-ha tattooed onto himself, and a deck of cards with the Joker, and a jester, and a smile. Get it? Yeah. And a J teardrop tattoo in fine prison gang fashion. Yeah. It's just... It's... I mean, on some level, I think this is why people are reacting to it this way. Is it is condescending to such an absurd level that... Ooh, what if they don't get that the Joker is, is a bad guy and he's kind of silly? And he's crazy. And he's crazy. How can we... We can't trust the performer to convey that, yeah. <laughs> so we have to put it in tattoos just so people will get it. Yeah, I mean, I love these. So did, did the Joker? He would, he'd have to like go to someone and be like, "Here's my design, ha ha ha," and that's you know I like to laugh, and so I want you to tattoo that over my nipple, which <laughs> I don't really know how you do that, but do yeah. that. It's just like all every part of it. Like the Joker doesn't plan shit out like that, does yeah. he? Yeah, it's just. 
I mean, yeah, that's exactly it. Just thinking about the Joker going into a tattoo parlor. He's yeah. like, I, I want you to put damage across my forehead. Because I'm a little bit not all there, you see. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. This movie could redeem itself if we get to see those scenes. Yeah. That would be great. The first half hour is him going from tattoo parlor to tattoo parlor, killing people and getting tattoos. Yeah. Like, that's what I'm saying. This like, if they go for some, and it could be terrible if they do this, but if they go for some really crazy postmodern, like, self-referential, kind of almost fourth wall breaking version of the Joker, that's the only way I can see this character design working for me. I don't know. Like, I, and even that, like, is, would probably, like, fall apart and be terrible because it would be really hard to pull off. But, yeah, yeah and, I just don't see why you would make him look like this. And, you know, one thing people have pointed out is he probably will not be shirtless for the whole movie. So you probably, he'll just be in whatever suit they decide to give him. And that will be what the Joker will look like for most of the movie. But if, Fine. like, this is how he looks without his shirt off, do yeah. you really want to see what he looks like with his shirt on? Good point. And let's take that a step further, though. Let's assume they get a really cool Joker costume that we look at and be like, all right, maybe it's a little different, but that looks good. I still take offense to the grill, to yeah, the general definitely. expression, to the over-the-top shit, and you're not going to get rid of that damage tattoo. Yeah, so will always be there. You know, I don't know. It's <laughs> Here's the thing. So a bunch of people were saying on Twitter last night also, you know, oh, but, you know... I'm open, you know, the Joker is such an evergreen character, why are you not open to new, in, you know, interpretations? Here's the thing, I've seen a lot of interpretations of the Joker, yeah. and I think there are a lot of great interpretations out there, as different as, you know, Cesar Romero and Heath Ledger, Yeah, and they are all the Joker to me because he is a malleable character, mm -hmm. I just don't see any incarnation of the Joker I'm familiar with personally, or anything I see in the essence of that character necessarily reflected in something this pandering. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just, you look at him and he looks like, he looks like he would be, like, a Joker thug, you know, and not right, the Joker yeah, yeah. himself. Like, he doesn't, like, there's just nothing about him that I look at as, like, well, that's, like, that's the fucking Joker, man. Like, just imagine this Joker, like, with the Ben Affleck Batman, you know, <laughs> like... Like, what are, like, what would their relationship be? Like, how would that, like, him as a supervillain in, like, the Batman universe just doesn't make sense to me. No, and... None of it makes sense. And the thing I, you know, thing it furthers, obviously, is that all the DC movies are going to be monotone. They are all going to be, you know, dark and gritty and try to be realistic. Yeah. Whatever. For one, I that does not look dark and gritty and realistic to me. That looks absurd. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of the problem is... The best thing in Christopher Nolan's trilogy is their version of the Joker. Yeah. And they nailed what I would call the, you know, realistic, quote-unquote, if you had to put the Joker in the real world, what might he be like? That's a good imagination yeah. of that. Mm -hmm. And if you have to do something different, which they probably do here because you can't just compare yourself to that. Yeah. You know, I don't know what you do because I think they did that the right way where, you know, he's not going to be caked in the white paint from head to face. He has to apply that himself. Yeah. It's something he would do. You can see that character. It's the design thing you were talking about. You can totally imagine the Heath Ledger Joker waking up in the morning and putting that face paint on. Yeah. But kind of in that slapdash way they have it where it's really messy. Yeah. You know, all of those things. And he has the shitty purple suit because... You know, fuck it, he can afford it, and he thinks it's fun. Yeah. But he's also, you know, fucking criminally insane. Yeah. You know, this looks a lot crazier, so I don't know. And, and again, none of these movies exist yet, <laughs> so it's tough to know. But it's, it's just all the indications are going somewhere where I don't I don't like the, the you know, we're just going to go dark and gritty and all of that yeah. shit. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute <laughs> with the trailer. But, you know, it's also just... 
every indication going in that direction but me thinking it you know paradoxically looks more ridiculous the more you try to make it quote-unquote realistic because if your logic is oh the joker's in prison for a long time and people in prison get a grill and they get tattoos so what would the joker's version of that be like at that point you have to realize these things are detached from reality it's yeah. okay you can let there be the mystery and the, like that's one of the things chris nolan did well in that movie that was so smart is they don't dive too deep into what makes the Joker tick. Yeah. Because once you do, you, you do lose that illusion. That guy could not exist in the real world. Yeah. But for the illusion of reality, it works there. So I don't know. Yeah, it's... Just stupid. It's really silly. Like, it's just... Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to see the trailer for this movie. Just, like, I want to yeah. see what this version of the Joker looks like in motion, you know? Like, what, I know. What, like, what are they doing? And of course there's the other thing that annoys me about all this Which is that we are talking about a movie that has not started Principal photography and does not come out for like two years So right, yeah So the, the DC hype train is really annoying Because they seem kind of really self-satisfied And overzealous in their marketing Without having a single film out Yeah, like they've, yeah, exactly They're so sort of like, man, everyone's going to be super pumped up For everything that we do Even though, yeah, they have not proven that they know what they're doing at all When all they put out in their new like movie universe is Man of Steel and a lot of people do not like that movie and you know whether you like it or not it's not enough to know what the bigger thing is yeah. because Man of Steel was not constructed to be the first step in anything It's they were yeah. just making a Superman movie and you can't really judge what the future would be like on that because whether again whether you like it or not that tone would not work for a lot of these characters arguably it did not work for Superman yeah no I, so it's there's a there's a lot of problems here that will need to be sorted out, but we'll get there in due time, or or not. We'll see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So, let's see. Okay, so the big thing, obviously, was also the week the Star Wars trailer came out. The Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice trailer leaked. First in that shitty webcam version, or whatever. Right, yeah. Which uh, I just didn't bother didn't with, because yeah. who gives a shit? Like, they're just going to release the trailer. Why right. watch it when it's in a shitty quality? Yeah, and so then they put the real one out almost immediately, because that's what happens today. And, uh, Sean, your reaction to the Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice teaser trailer. Man, they sure are making a Dark Knight Returns movie, aren't they? Like, they just gave up on making a Man of Steel 2. They were just like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just make another Batman movie. Well, we've got the Superman guy, and he has a whole contract. Eh, we'll put him in there a little bit. We'll let Batman beat him up. Okay. Yeah, That's I mean... my reaction. There's I want my fucking Superman movie. I want my good Superman movie, goddammit. What the fuck? I don't want another fucking Batman movie. Like, we just did the Batman thing. Why can't we give Superman his fucking run, you know? Shit. Because I think, going back to Man of Steel, one of the things you said is that there were thing, individual things you did like about the movie, and yes. maybe in the future they could... Like, Henry Cavill is good. He's a really good Superman. Like, yeah, yeah there are parts, like, if they made a Man of Steel 2 and learned... From the things that, in my opinion, were bad about Man of Steel 1, they could have made a really good Superman movie. Like, it was not, like, reprehensibly bad all the way through, like, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Like, there were glimmers of hope for me in Man of Steel. Okay, yeah. Um, so here's... And the first thing I want to say is, I just think it's an awful trailer. I think you compare that to something like the Star Wars tease we got... To some other, you know, like the Furious 7 trailers, the Avengers 2 trailers that are just, they're good, they give you what you need, they make you feel happy and excited. Yeah. That, I think the Batman v Superman trailer is is just overwrought and, and poorly assembled and not interesting. And if that's the tease, frankly, I have no use for it. But if we're picking it apart, which we are doing, uh, the, the thing I like least is basically what you're saying. It looks like a Batman movie, and more than anything, 
it's a movie where they are specifically positioning Superman as the bad guy. Yeah. And I don't like that. That is one of the things I hate about The Dark Knight Returns. I think The Dark Knight Returns is in a, a just a reprehensible piece of fiction on a lot of levels. I think its morality is very suspect. I think it's a lot of the stuff in there is just kind of cringeworthy. And part of it is their portrayal of Superman. Yeah. Um, you know, and just the the thoughtless nihilism to all of that on some level. You know, not that nihilism is bad, but there's there's a you know there's a thoughtful nihilism yeah. and a thoughtless nihil yeah anyway um and i think man of steel again whether you like it or not it does position superman as the hero he's not the bad guy of yeah. that movie like you can disagree with some of the choices made at the end but he is trying to say you know save the yeah. world right yeah. he's trying to be a good dude and so i don't like that it's we're going to get the movie that or at least as they're marketing it to all of us and they have been before this teaser and now after as everyone hates superman and he's a bad guy, and Batman's got to stop him, because that's what Batman does. Yeah. I don't have any use for that movie, frankly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to... Here, and so here's the thing. If you liked Man of Steel, this is not a sequel to that, and will not follow up on the things you liked. Yeah. If this is... If you disliked Man of Steel, but hoped maybe they could do something better, this really isn't going in that direction either. Yeah. Because and I saw some people on Twitter being like, oh, but, you know, they're, they're doing the thing all the people who hated Man of Steel said, which is now they're blaming Superman for all the destruction. No! That's, that's not what I... That's the opposite. I didn't want any of that to happen in the fucking first place. I don't want them to then, like, make it a whole thing where now Superman is evil. Like, I don't want it to be, like, the episode from Justice League where they go to an alternate universe where, like, Superman has cracked and, like, become a dictator. That's not what I want. I want fucking Superman to be a fucking superhero. And my problem was that he was destroying things in the first place. I don't want a whole movie trying to deconstruct that because that's another fucking movie where Superman does not get to be Superman. Because that's my main complaint with their version of Superman and Man of Steel is that I never felt like he was Superman throughout the whole movie, especially when the movie ends with him having to kill General Zod. There is no triumphant, he is now totally Superman, 100% Superman moment in that movie. And so it's like... Now we have Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, which just makes it look like they are pushing off that moment again and just like going into Batman now, where it's like, now we get a beat up Superman because Superman's not the superhero we want him to be. Yeah. It's like, it's just fucking make, it's fucking Superman. Just make him Superman. How hard is that for God's sake? People have been doing it for like almost a hundred years at this point. Fucking shit. <laughs> yeah, um... I had a I had a Twitter just a, like a brief digression. You're talking about you know the moment where he kills General Zod, obviously yeah. a very controversial moment from that film. Uh, as because as you would say, and a lot of people would say, you know, oh my, you know, the Superman in, that I envisioned would not kill someone. Yeah, right. Uh, I had a really funny Twitter conversation with uh, a listener or a reader or something, and and uh, I just mentioned that moment. I said, you know, I like that scene in the context of the movie, but I do understand why it's problematic for people. And he tweeted back and said, well, you can't know something is bad until you try it. <laughs> <laughs> that was, if that's the logic of the filmmakers, that exactly. would be so great. But that's like that's like what they kind of said after Man of Steel came out to like justify that decision of like, well, like we needed, we wanted something that is like a reason why Superman doesn't kill someone. It's like he, he doesn't need like this special fucking backstory for why he doesn't. Like I don't kill people. It's not because like I had some tragic moment where I had to like fucking kill the last survivor of my species it's like you just know not to kill people like that's not how morality works like i don't need to fucking like binge on like meth and almost kill myself to know that i shouldn't fucking take <laughs> meth you know 
<laughs> fucking goddamn it. It's such, such yeah. like a stupid... Like, it's really funny in, like, that context of, like, right. you know... On Twitter, I, it's funny, but... Yeah, it, but as, like, a serious rationale for, like, that narrative decision, it's like, no, you fucking... Like, you need to fucking justify why you feel you need to justify it. Like, that's the actual justification that needs to be made. Yeah. So, anyway... Yeah. Uh, anything else from... The, I mean, okay. We do get uh, the briefest of glimpses of Ben Affleck. He, gla- he glowers. And then he's in the suit. Yeah. And we have... Robo Batman voice, yeah, which I thought was a weird decision. It's like, like tell you know me, what? Do you bleed? And I did not understand what he was saying for probably three viewings. He said, "Tell me, do you bleed?" Yeah, no, I couldn't get it. It's like if you—they're like, you know what? Christian Bale's Batman voice was good, but it wasn't grumbly and dark and in, unintelligible enough. Yeah, like let's put a weird <laughs> robot filter over him. Yeah, I. Yeah, we got like. The best part of the trailer was that, like, the brief voice clips of, like, random actual real people, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, talking about, yeah. like, Superman and stuff. It's like, hey, I know, like, half of the people talking right now, and they're, most of them are people I like. And then then I think there was, like, a, maybe, like, a line from uh, Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor. People said that. I couldn't hear it's, it. But... It's hard to tell. Like, if, yeah. it sounded like the line, I forget what the line was, but the line sounded like something that probably Lex Luthor okay. type guy would say. But And it doesn't sound like Jesse Eisenberg, so maybe he's doing a voice or something. Yeah. Um, and then the, the big one is you get a speech from Alfred. Oh, Jamie right, Irons, yeah. yeah. Which, like, it drove me crazy when I was watching it, like... Because it's like I knew it was Alfred But I didn't remember Who they had cast To play Alfred So yeah. I was like Who the fuck is this voice And it took me forever Because it doesn't sound Like Alfred Like Jeremy Irons Is a That's really bad casting for I Alfred, agree I mean, like, Jeremy Irons Is the guy you cast To be the angry British dude Not like the nice British dude You know Right Yeah uh, And it You know More than anything This is what I said on Twitter When the trailer premiered it just looks... This trailer has so much that is just the same to me as what we've seen before. Yeah. It's more of the kind of overwrought Superman morality that we get caught up in. It's more of the overwrought, you know, Batman being glowery and being sad and having the weird voice. And it's more of Alfred giving speeches. And it's more of, you know, really shadowy cinematography. And it's, frankly, you know, just redoing panels from a really shitty comic book everyone inexplicably likes. Yeah. And... And I just, and and it's more of the tone that Chris Nolan was much better at doing than these people, frankly. Yeah. And which also he couldn't sustain through three movies because the third one falls apart yeah. under the weight of itself. So, yeah, um, there's just nothing in there that just as a film goer, as a general Batman fan, as a general Superman fan, let's forget going into specifics on any of this. That I you know am someone with opinions on these things. Just in general, nothing in here interests me. Yeah. And it's just something where I am so fucking sick and tired of, like, the modern deconstructionist version of Superman that everyone who doesn't like Superman does with Superman of, like, what if Superman was real and he's, like, a tyrant man because he's, like, all powerful and all that shit. It's, like, it's it's an interesting motivation for, like, a Lex Luthor character, but it's been done to fucking death in the comic books, and I'm just tired of it. Like, I feel like at this point in our society, I think Marvel is proving that we need to wrap back around and go back to superheroes being, like, hopeful, inspiring figures and not be the thing that they were in, like, the 80s and 90s and early 2000s of, like, being, like, we have to make it dark and gritty and real and fucking, like, we have to have big crossover events where, like, C-list superheroes are killed off to make it fucking, 
fucking stakes in the story and like someone's fucking arm needs to get ripped off and shit like that it's like it needs to be bloody and violent and disgusting it's like fucking no I am so done with that and Marvel has shown that it's like you don't need to do that with a character like fucking Superman Superman doesn't need to be dark sad gritty with like all your all your color scheme being like this really dark blue everywhere you know it's like he can be this hopeful inspiring figure and that can be interesting and you can tell interesting stories with it because again people have been doing that with that character for almost a hundred fucking years now we need to stop the stupid deconstructionist bullshit that we're doing and frankly I would say a lot of that for Batman too at this yeah. point I feel that there too because I think there's been this inclination, you know, basically since the... I mean, the Batman film series is a weird up and down kind of arc. But yeah. there's always been this inclination of he needs to be dark, gritty, and kind of grounded in some way. And I think that makes sense in some interpretations of Batman. I also don't think it's particularly sustainable. And I think the most interesting versions of Batman, to me, are the ones that kind of experiment with reality and how far yeah. you go with this. I think... The Arkham games do that. I think the animated series does that. Frankly, I even think the Adam West series, you know, has probably interesting things to do with yeah. that. Because it's, you know, that series isn't, you know, just a joke. It was an actual Batman incarnation yeah. at some point. And, you know, Batman clearly contains multitudes, but we're kind of reducing him down to this very one-sided character. You know, I would... I would frankly like a Batman and Robin movie. Like, not the Joel Schumacher Batman and Robin, yeah. but a movie where, you know, we actually try that. Because you can do yeah. it and you can make it work in a lot of different ways. Yeah, exactly. I want a cinematic version of Superman where Robin would be able to exist. Like, yeah. Robin as Robin, you know? Because that makes Batman more dynamic. Yeah. Because everyone says, oh, you can't do Robin because Batman is too dark. Well, then you're subscribing to the notion that Batman is one thing and one thing only. Yeah. And, you know, I think I thought that for a while until I was exposed to the animated series, until I played the Arkham games, until I started seeing some older comics and stuff and saw... No, Robin actually, and the other heroes that Batman works with... Yeah, the with, Bat family. The Bat family really offers something to that character, uh, in part because the most interesting interpretations of Batman to me are not the ones where he is completely psychotic and broken, yeah. but maybe has a screw loose, you know? Yeah, exactly. He's, yeah, he's definitely not, like, the most sane of individuals. Right. But yeah, I like it when Batman is a superhero, you know? Like, yeah. I, yeah, I don't necessarily need the version where it's like, he's just as crazy as the villains are kind of thing. Because that's also super played out. And I think there's this viewpoint that, you know, oh, it can't work that way. But again, look at what Marvel's doing. And Marvel obviously has very different superheroes than DC does. But, you know, I look at Captain America and Iron Man and some of these characters who I know, in the hands of most filmmakers today, they would do the dark, tortured version of it. You know, uh, Chris Nolan or Zack Snyder's Iron Man would be alcoholic from the first movie and, and they would do yeah, demon he, in a bottle right off the bat and that would be the only thing they ever do with him. And he would be, yeah, like, like brooding in corners about yeah. how, like, the shrapnel is going towards his heart and it's like, I only have, like, two days to live if my yeah. fucking power thingy goes out. I mean, just, we're gonna get to this. I think Daredevil, as the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done him on TV, yeah. is almost more interesting to me than any cinematic version of Batman we've yeah. done. Because Daredevil, obviously, is the Marvel analog to Batman. They are very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. In part because Frank Miller defined them both in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, but look at how... And I think it's just... it's We're talking shades of gray, shades of degrees. Yeah. The difference between these things. Because Daredevil is a very grounded show. He's a very grounded hero. And yet, there is there are multitudes to it. There are yeah. tonal multitudes. 
that work and and you can get all of that and you know he's not a loner he has friends and he likes having friends yeah exactly and there's like yeah there are even though most of the characters that he like fights with are just normal kind of thugs there are shades of like there's something else there like i can see daredevil existing in the same universe as thor in a way that like you know if you threw in like mr freeze into one of the christopher (laughs) nolan batman movies like, it would just completely fall apart. You would never be able to sustain that. Even well, though, like, Mr. Freeze is, like, as the animated series has proven, if you're able to, like, incorporate that character into the universe and, like, incorporate him well, he's a very fascinating, tragic character. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, I, you know, I mean, it makes me worry. Suicide Squad, I, you can't do Harley Quinn in this kind of tone. You just sure, She yeah. doesn't work that way. She is a cartoon character. They may call her Harley Quinn, but I just don't know how that works. Um... And again, none of these movies are out yet. They could all be good. I certainly hold out hope they're going to be good. But they're, I just, they're not providing anything interesting. And I really do wonder how well Batman v Superman is going to do. Because Man of Steel did not break the bank. I mean, it, okay, yeah. it made a lot of money. But by a lot of Hollywood standards, I mean, it did significantly less than the Dark Knight movies. Mm-hmm. It performed more like maybe a Batman Begins or something. And... I think the trailer they're giving is kind of so insular. I don't know what the general public would make of it. I don't know if there'd right, be any yeah. excitement for them. And again, that sense of sameness, it really feels samey to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just, I really am curious because we're, you know... And I can understand some fatigue maybe setting in for the general public on some Marvel stuff too. But overall, I do think Marvel is trying... To mix it up. Like, the Avengers 2 trailers don't look like the Avengers 1 trailers. Yeah. And things like that. And then, you know, like, Guardians of the Galaxy is totally different yeah, from... throw a curveball. Yeah, and, from how the rest of the Marvel movies are. Yeah. So, we will see. Um, yeah. Everyone is trying to imitate Marvel, and no one is really paying attention to what they're doing right. Exactly. Like, they're just trying to imitate the business strategy and not, like, yeah. the, the creative side of it in any way. Yeah. Man, I mean, we really could if we wanted to. We could have a weekly feature on this show where we just say which studio has announced which new interleaked cinematic universe this week because there really is one every week and most of them are never going to come to fruition but it is funny yeah it's didn't because i feel like i just read that like the universal horror monster movies ones were like they're just like we're not sure what to do with them so we're just like pushing it all back they were gonna probably never come out no because they were gonna use that dracula untold and i (laughs) frankenstein stuff that was awful but no one liked those movies i I still love like dracula the untold story is that every time i saw that title it's like you do fucking realize that fucking like it's a book and like a million different like other books and TV shows and movies How, here's and the video games. There are no untold. Like if you think you're like going back to like the Vlad the Impaler stuff with Dracula is like the untold story for Dracula, you're fucking crazy. Here's here's my question. Yeah. How many Dracula properties do you think have been marketed in that way? There have probably been a bunch. Like yeah. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but yes, definitely. Like there's no way that that's the first Dracula the Untold Story. I think that's the Bram Stoker uh Dracula movie that uh Coppola did had some of that. Yeah, just marketing. Bram Stoker's Dracula probably yeah. did, yeah. Anyway, cuz you have never seen a uh what's his what's the main character's name? The Keanu Reeves character? Uh Harker, John Harker. Harker. You've never yeah. seen Jonathan Harker with that bad a British accent. It's true. It's, that is the yeah. untold story. <laughs> yeah, the untold story of like apparently, yeah, like in Victorian England, yeah. you had Keanu Reeves running around pretending to be British, and everyone had to just like be nice and not say anything about how awful that accent was. All right, one last piece of Batman news to just make a joke about Frank Miller in the middle of all of this, as if the '80s were not alive enough right now. Yeah. Frank Miller announced that he is publishing later this year through DC the Dark Knight Three. The Master Race. 
Sean. Yeah, so first of all, it was Dark Knight Returns, then Dark Knight Strikes Again. Now it's just the Dark Knight 3. Yeah. It's just like, what the fuck is, does that even mean? The Master Race. <laughs> For people who don't know a lot about Frank Miller as a creator, like, obviously, he's really heralded as sort of being kind of like one of the main creative voices that ushered in that sort of like gritty era, as you said, with like Daredevil. His I've never read his run on Daredevil, but his run on Daredevil was like really revamped the character, and a lot of the I know that a lot of the stuff in the Daredevil TV show take from things that he did there, and then also he then did like Batman uh, Returned, yeah, Batman Returns, and then Batman Year One, and that really revamped the Batman character in a lot of ways to make him more gritty. He is certainly one of the most influential voices yeah. ever in comics. Yeah, without a doubt, like he definitely and when he did those. A lot of those are really good. They're not all amazing. I think, like, a lot of them are way overrated. Like, some of them more overrated than others. But, like, there's definitely a lot of value in it. And I think, like, in terms of them being, like, comics as a narrative medium, he definitely did a lot of very interesting sort of experimental things with, like, pacings of panels and stuff like that. That is, like, the dude was influential for a reason. But he slowly... Like, those aspects of what he was doing that were maybe not so great, like the sort of weird political commentary in Dark Knight Returns, as he got older, that stuff just sort of grew and grew and grew and just completely overwhelmed and overtook everything about his writing. Like a tumor. Yeah, exactly. Until the point where he just became a complete parody of himself, where, like, every single thing he wrote was completely awful, like... The, his politics and his morality became completely front and center to the point where like characters like Batman just became mouthpieces for his like really extremist ideologies well for instance he was going to write that story Holy Terror Batman which yes. DC then refused to publish because they're sane I guess and it, he still publishes something else but it was going to be Batman fights Al-Qaeda yeah basically and it's if you just want to really hate the human race for a little bit just look up some of like Frank Miller's blog posts that he did and just read like his crazy manic rantings because that's just like the guy he became and he's not he Frank Miller has not made anything good in fucking decades and so yeah like if the idea of him still like getting able to being able to publish a new like entry into the story Dark Knight Returns chronology for Batman where Dark Knight Strikes Again is one of like the seriously one of the worst comic books I've ever read I never even finished the whole graphic novel because it was dreadful just in every single aspect like the art was terrible the dialogue was terrible the plotting was terrible everything about Dark Knight Strikes Again was completely fucking awful like it looked like he didn't even he just forgot how to even make a comic book at some point and then there was All-Star Batman and Robin yes do you want to give us the line Sean I'm the goddamn Batman what are you retarded or something? I'm the goddamn Batman. Yeah, that's the line. He says that to Robin after ro- locking Robin in a basement and feeding him rats. Yeah, like, and, and it's also that's the ad. Like thinking about All Star Batman and Robin, which is just like Frank Miller should not be let back into like a room with like the Batman character. Like he's just kid. Like DC should just like order a restraining order on him <laughs> to keep him away from fucking Batman because everything valuable he added to the Batman character he just twisted and perverted. And made it fucking awful. Yeah. And, and, and you know, so I said earlier, I don't like Dark Knight Returns, and I really don't. And, and I found it interesting the first time I read it, and I've, and I, I, frankly, I was young, and I missed a lot of the stuff in there that I find repulsive now, like his, um, 
the blatant homophobia yeah. and stuff like that, and the very it's it's this isn't just a conservative liberal thing either. I mean, we're talking about someone who is so far right. I think most people would call that insanity. Yeah, like know? it's not. Yeah, it's not a part of the political spectrum. No. Like it's just it's craziness. It's yeah, insanity. it's craziness. It's it's the racism. It's the sexism. It's the classism. It's all of that stuff. It's the really I think infantile uh, and adolescent and immature sense of you know philosophy, if you want to call it that, he has in his books. Yeah. When I say you know his thoughtless nihilism and thoughtless anarchy, it's that kind of stuff. Like if yeah. you want to. If you want a crash course in this, read Dark Knight Returns and then read Alan Moore's V for Vendetta. Yeah. Two books that I think have very differing amounts of maturity in how they tackle the idea of anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one is good and one is not. Or if you want to just like really expose the really awful parts of Dark Knight Returns, just read the half of the book that does not have Batman in it and is just oh, sure. the talking head interviews with like the random news, like facsimile, like bullshit. Like, once you realize that that is basically half the book and all of it is just awful, it really, like, shines a light on how bad that book is as a whole. So, with all of this background in mind, when I see the title, The Dark Knight 3, The Master Master Race Race, by Frank Miller, I think of, he is going to write a story in which Batman ditches the cowl, gets a Ku Klux Klan helmet, or or hood, or whatever that is. No, it's a helmet. He's made the hood into a helmet. And, uh, and he decides to create the master race and becomes a white supremacist. Yeah. That is what this book is going to be, because that's basically who Frank Miller is. Yeah, so. at some point. It's... Yeah. It's frightening. And then I also love that... The other funny part about All-Star Batman and Robin is that that book just, like, fell apart in terms of, like, the production of it. Yeah. Where it's just, like, it was supposed to be, I think, a monthly series, and I don't think it ever kept it. Like, All-Star Batman and Robin was worse at keeping to its schedule than we are for this podcast (laughs) by a significant margin. And that's fucking... Because I mean that by, like, there were multiple year gaps between some issues, and then they just stopped coming out. Like, I don't think he ever finished it. We also aren't in a contract being paid for our work. It's true. (laughs) We do this for fun. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And hey, if Frank Miller wants to write his Batman fanfic online for fun, Batman the Master Race, you know, the Dark Knight joins the Ku Klux Klan, go ahead, Frank Miller. You can do whatever you want if you're doing your fanfic, but... Yeah. I I just can't believe that fucking DC is, like, letting him write again for them. All right, let's keep going. Um, Yeah. Frank Miller. Speaking of movie trailers that annoy me with their commitment to gritty aesthetics, you see the new Fantastic Four trailer? Yeah, I barely remember it, but I definitely saw it. I, I I don't I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't Yeah. I don't get it. Here's the thing, I'm At say. least this time there were enough of the characters on screen for long enough and they literally said their names and I was like, okay, that's supposed to be Reed Richards, or obviously that is the thing because he's a big rock guy. Yeah. That at least like it was a, definitely a trailer for a Fantastic Four movie. It wasn't a trailer for a good Fantastic Four movie. It was not a good trailer. But I could tell what movie it was outside of the context of seeing the title on, like, the YouTube uh, screen. So here's the thing. And this is going to be an unpopular opinion at first, but stick with me. I think the Fantastic Four movies from 2005 and 2007, for the moment in which they came out, had some of the right ideas. I yeah. really do think that. I think they I think had... the second one, the Silver Surfer one, was okay. Like, I it was not a bad movie. No, I actually kind of like that one in part. Um, I think... They had crucial miscastings of Reed and Sue. Yeah. That was the big one. I, I actually think their Ben and uh, Johnny were really good. I mean, yeah. that's where Chris Evans came from. Yeah. You know, he's a really good Johnny Storm. Uh, I think they had the tone in the right direction. I think it was maybe a little too 
far in the kind of we're going to be light and and kind of fun and it, it needed a little pulled back to have a little weight but i think it was generally in the right direction i just think there was a lot of incompetence in terms of who was writing it and who was directing it and, and that it felt a little lazy in large part but i think those two movies again for the moment they came out had a lot of the right ideas yeah this is i feel like this new one has kind of the opposite it's got good casting to me in terms of what i think we're seeing and i just knowing these actors like i like the idea of michael b jordan as Johnny Storm. And I think, you know, Kate Mara, it looks like they're trying to make the Invisible Woman more of a character. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, um, I like that Reed Richards has a personality in this trailer that you can kind of feel because Miles Teller is an actor with a personality. Yeah. Unlike Ewan Griffod. Never know how to say his name. Yeah. But anyway, um, so, you know, there's all that. But the tone is so completely out of whack. Of all the Marvel superheroes who I think just shouldn't get the dark, gritty, realistic, sci-fi version, yeah. it's the Fantastic Four. I want to see a Fantastic Four movie, and I just want to kind of have fun and feel like you're with family, because that's, yeah. that's the theme of the series. And uh, this trailer, I just there's nothing in there that interests me, frankly. Yeah. It, like, it looks like a trailer for... Like, it's gritty and dark in a way that it looks like a trailer for a superhero movie in, from, like, 2001. Yeah. You know, like, from, like, the original X-Men series or something. Yeah. Like, it's so dark and just kind of unpleasant. Like, there's nothing fun about it that, yeah, there's just... It's also... And I know it's tough to redo these things, but this will be the third Fantastic Four movie, second officially released, <laughs> to have the same story. Right, yeah. Because you have the original what, tax write-off movie, yeah. which was, they get their powers... Doctor Doom gets his powers. Doctor Doom tries to do some shit. They take down Doctor Doom. Yeah. Then the the official movie that came out was they get their powers. Doctor Doom gets his powers. They fight Doctor Doom. End of movie. Yeah. This new movie is they get their powers. Doctor Doom gets his powers. Except they're not calling him Doctor Doom. Have you seen what his name is? He's Russian yeah. now, and he's not Victor Von Doom. He's Victor Dumanschmark or something. <laughs> and, and Dumanschnuff. I don't know what it really is, but yeah. it's like that. Because, oh, we can't just call him Victor Von Doom. That'd be silly. Yeah, and in the movie with, like, Mr. Fantastic, Fantastic, the Cuban Torch, Invisible Woman, and the fucking thing. Yeah. So In the movie where, like, there's no possible way the thing does not say it's clobbering time at some point. Like, they're contractually ob obligated at some point for him to say it. And it's like, when you have to have the thing say his catchphrase, which is, it's clobbering time... You know that the gritty, realistic version of these characters has already fallen apart. Because like, yeah. you can't pull that off unless you're making it fun. And I think there are some interesting... You know, I like the visual effects here. I like the effect on the Human Torch. I, I think the thing looks kind of interesting. Like, I think it looks like a good CGI rendition of this character overall. But we'll see. I mean, it, it's just... I think the original Fantastic Four movies aren't great. But I think they get a bad rap. And this seems like a wild overcompensation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it definitely also looks like. I mean, we didn't see much of anything, but just like from hearing about it, I don't. It doesn't sound like they're going to do Doctor Doom right. Like they've never really done him right, which is terrible because they've never like done the comic version of Doctor Doom really. Like they've I, gone all the way with it. And I really wonder if at this point he's the right guy to do for the first Fantastic Four story in a movie. Sure. Yeah. Whatever the comic stuff is, I just wonder if you should start smaller and then maybe have him as a character so you get to know the human. Mm -hmm. And then maybe something happens in the first movie where he becomes that. And then the second could be like the big Empire Strikes Back level face-off. Because that's part of the problem with doing Doctor Doom in a first movie. Is you can't really have consequences. And I think he's too big and bad a villain to have to take down in the one fight at the end which is inevitably how these go because yeah. you can't have him there from the beginning mm -hmm. because they're not going to have their powers from the beginning that's yeah. you know so I don't know 
And yeah, I mean, all the buzz, if you haven't heard, the industry buzz is Fox hates this movie. They would prefer, like, not to release it, but they have to. It's just, I guess it's kind of a disaster. And, you know, that could just be the studio's take. It could be a really good movie. Yeah. Um, and maybe these trailers... But, like, that's the other thing, is this trailer has... And we're going to talk about this more with the next trailer. This trailer has a couple of jokes in it, but the overall tone of the trailer is so dour and with the big important music that when they come, I was just kind of like, huh, was that a joke? And maybe in the actual movie it'll be funny, but who knows. I don't even remember any jokes in the trailer. It's really dry. It's like this one moment with Ben and Reed, and Reed says something, and then Ben makes a noise. Oh, I vaguely remember. I don't remember what it was, because this is how little... Of an impre- and I fucking love the Fantastic Four, and I yeah. saw this trailer, and it made so little of an impression on me. I don't even remember the part that I thought was the stupidest part, but the stupidest part was definitely at the end. I don't remember what happened, but they just tried to do the, like, post-trailer sting thing, you know, where it's like all the information for the movie has come up, and then you have something happen at the very end oh, that's right, supposed right, to be, yeah. like, either if it's a comedy, it's supposed to be really funny, or if it's, like, a big action movie, it's supposed to be, like, the coolest fucking thing in the trailer, and it just completely fell, fell flat. I don't remember what it was. What it, what it is is it's uh, the thing dropping out of a helicopter. Yes! And, yeah, he just jumps out of a helicopter and lands on the ground, and that's it. It's like, wh- okay. Like, there was nothing cool, you know? That's, like... You save that spot for, like, where someone, like, fucking jumps off of a plane onto, like, a fucking helicopter that's in midair and, like, throws the pilot out and gets in it and, like, does something, like, blows up the plane or something. Like, that's the sort of scale of awesome action moment you're supposed to save for that end part of the trailer. And it's like, the thing jumped out of that plane. That's crazy. He's a rock dude, though, so he'll survive when he hits the ground. Yeah. Also, this also this trailer uh, features Tim Blake Nelson, the actor who is apparently going to be the, like, government stooge. And I realized I can no longer take Tim Blake Nelson seriously because of his role on the Netflix series Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where he comes to New York to visit Kimmy and gets hooked on cocaine and is crazy, and it is so fucking funny, but Tim Blake Nelson is ruined for me now. Yeah. I can probably watch him in Coen Brothers movies, like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But that's probably it. Yeah, sure. Anyway, yeah, that, that has nothing to do with Fantastic Four. Yeah, I but just it's, to it's always that. the risk for an actor when you get, like, that one role that, like... It's, it's just so, so incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's like either so funny or so like dramatic that now you can no longer see you in a context that's not like that same kind of tone. Yeah. That I do think happens. if that show, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, aired like a normal series, like week to week, for the weeks that he was on that show, that's all the internet would talk about. He is so fucking funny in that show. Anyway. Um, okay. We've bagged a lot on other superhero movie companies. Yes. I, I want to bag on Marvel for a minute because okay. the second Ant-Man trailer also came out yeah. um, the week this all was coming out. I think the Ant-Man trailers are really bad. Yeah. I, like, they also... I've, I've seen all of them that have come out and they've, yeah. they've made no impression on me. No impression and I think they do exactly what I just said about the Fantastic Four trailer where I don't get what the tone is. Mm-hmm. It's... They're doing this really kind of... Not dour, because Marvel doesn't typically do dour yeah. trailers, but very kind at least of, there are colors in the there, there are colors in not the dark blue. Right. Um, but it's this very kind of serious and self-important with the big kind of dramatic music and heroic. And I don't get it. Is it and But there's a bunch of jokes, and yeah. all the jokes fall flat because there's the big horns playing behind them. And the sense of importance and Evangeline Lilly giving a really big speech about what it means to be the Ant-Man. And Michael Douglas talking about, you know, how you're going to be a hero. Yeah. And I don't get any of that. I think visually it's very kind of flat and uninteresting. Um, And then the thing that annoys me more than anything else, I never thought we'd see this in a Marvel movie. And it kind of disappoints me, is it does that thing 
that I hate in the sort of postmodern superhero thing where you have to be ashamed of being what yeah. you are. And so there's all these jokes about, I'm Ant-Man, I didn't choose it. At that, I, I check out when I hear that because if you're going to be a fun, if you're going to be a superhero movie, whatever kind you want, don't be ashamed of being that. Like, that's what annoyed me so much about that shitty Lone Ranger movie Disney made is if you're going to make the Lone Ranger, and I think you could make a fun Lone Ranger movie. Yeah, there's no reason you, why not. Yeah, but you have to do it in the fun, swashbuckling, you know, early Hollywood Errol Flynn kind of style. And instead they did it where every ten minutes he's like, the main character played by Army Hammer has to be really embarrassed by what he is. And he puts on the mask and he's like, this mask is stupid, why do I have to wear it? And at the end he does the, hi-ho, silver, away! And then Johnny Depp looks at him and says, never do that again. And it's... It's like, why do you want me to watch it if you're embarrassed of the movie you have made? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I don't know. The Ant-Man movie could be good, but it just looks kind of lifeless and without a voice. And it, it's, I don't want to, you know, do the prejudge thing, but when you had someone like Edgar Wright, who clearly would, you know, Edgar Wright is a very distinctive filmmaker. Yeah. And I think, you know, whatever, I'm not saying his version would automatically have been good, because no one's infallible, but... It would have had a voice or something and some sense of tone, I feel like. This just looks like a really kind of bland movie. And it looks lame, which I don't want to say because the thing is, Ant-Man is an inherently kind of lame idea. Yeah. That's what I was going to say about the thing about being embarrassed about yourself. Is It's like, I think I personally would struggle if I were like involved with that movie. Right, right. Not making fun of it being Ant-Man. Because it's, it's fucking Ant-Man. Ant-Man's really dumb. Like, he is extraordinarily dumb of a character. That he only worked for me, like, as just Ant-Man. Because he Ant-Man has had, like, 500 different superhero identities. But, like, Ant-Man for me only worked when, like, he wasn't really a superhero. But it was part of, like, a, like, horror... Like, his original story was kind of like a horror story. Where he's a scientist who accidentally shrinks himself... And, like, ends up, like, in this ant hill. And, like, so the ants are basically, like, giant to him and stuff. And in that context, it was, like, really a great little issue. As a superhero, the ability to turn really small is not very cool. And that's the thing, is they really try to play it up as, look, this is cool, this isn't lame, all of this. And it really seems to run counter to what they did with Guardians of the Galaxy, where, objectively, if you just look at Rocket, Raccoon, and Groot and all that, that looks like a dumb idea for a movie. Now that looks fucking awesome. <laughs> but the way that... That's, that's because the execution was so sure, good. Yeah. In the comics and in the movie. But yeah. I'm just saying, on its own, like, I don't think there's... As lame as Ant-Man seems, I don't think there's any reason you can't do a good Ant-Man story. Sure, yeah, you can do it. Yeah. You can make any story good. It's, it's the execution that matters, not the idea. But... This is one where it's just they're just trying to sell it totally straight-faced, and I don't get that, because that wasn't their strategy at all with Guardians. And I'm not saying this has to be just like that, but I don't. is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it more serious than other Marvel movies? Is it less serious? I have no idea. Those tra- There's two full trailers, and they're both long, and yeah. neither of them give me any sense of what the movie is. Yeah. Like, they do this big action scene at the end on that little train set, and then the big last moment is... Yeah, that it pulls back and it's like, hey, it's funny because it's small. But was I supposed to laugh? Was I supposed to be awed by it? I don't know. Yeah, it's a weird... Yeah, like, my main consolation with that is it's like, if the Ant-Man movie is the Marvel movie that's bad, I (laughs) honestly do not give a fucking shit because I don't... Like, it would be cool... For, like, the, an Ant-Man movie to be really good and to, like, convince me to get interested in Ant-Man. But I've never cared about Ant-Man as a character. 
it's just uh, you know all the buzz in the industry was that Edgar Wright's version was really good Joss Whedon just did an interview on the Avengers press tour where he said it's the best script Marvel ever had and he said he was amazing he wishes he would have read it, written it and maybe he's just being polite but yeah. I've heard enough things from people saying and Edgar Wright worked on it for like a decade yeah. that he knew what to do with this movie and, and I'm not saying they had to make his movie but if you're not going to make his movie, I kind of wonder why make Ant-Man. That's what yeah, I said when he, when Edgar Wright yeah. quit. I just, you know, because it doesn't even look like they're integrating him into Phase 3 in any yeah, significant way. Not. So I kind of wonder what the strategy is here. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, that, like, the thing that's interesting about Ant-Man isn't Ant-Man. It's Hank Pym, which isn't even the Ant-Man they're doing. They're doing Scott Lang, because there's, like... Hank Pym's in it, but he's, yeah. Yeah, he's old. But it's like Hank Pym as a character is a very interesting character... But he's not interesting as Ant-Man. Like, he's interesting... Because in the comic books, Hank Pym is the guy who made Ultron originally. And there's just, like, a lot of history with his character that's very interesting. And he's one of the, like, kind of, like, the big scientist figures in the Marvel Universe. So it's like, I like Hank Pym as a character. But it's like, any character as Ant-Man, I've never managed to find interesting. And I, to be fair, I've never read a huge amount of the comics from those characters. But the ones I've read... Just like yeah, they've never convinced me to like get really interested in him as a character. It's bizarre, and who knows? And and I also just in terms of that, are they going to integrate it? That's the other thing with the casting. It looks like good casting, but I can you see Michael Douglas and Paul Rudd committing to doing a bunch of cameos in other Marvel movies? Not really, and I don't necessarily really want them to. Like, and, and I love those two actors, yeah, and I think but, they'll hopefully they'll probably be really good in this. But they're not the kind of actors. They're too successful, frankly, outside of this, and have their own careers going on. Yeah. The thing about all the Marvel actors is they kind of got them as they were up and coming. Even Robert Downey Jr. was making a comeback. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, so there's room for that in their schedules. I, I don't. Paul Rudd's a busy guy. Michael yeah. Douglas is a busy guy. I don't see them coming and doing Ant Man two three and Avengers three four. You know. Yeah. But whatever. I mean, exciting news. Avengers 3-4 is confirmed there. That's the Russo brothers. Yeah. So they are full steam ahead on those guys. Yeah, fantastic. Like, yeah. Yeah, the, like all the people that sort of like to take over from Joss Whedon as like the helm of the Avengers side yeah. of it. Those are like, those are the guys I would want because Captain America 2 is still probably the best movie in the yeah. Marvel franchise. And hey, they are a brave couple of motherfuckers because that is, they are doing now three movies in a row for Marvel. Yeah. After doing a big one already. And, you know, Joss Whedon did two and tapped out because it was too yeah. <laughs> stressful, frankly. <laughs> so, everyone, that's the thing that scares me a little bit. Everyone who's seen Joss Whedon at these press tours says it looks like he's on the verge of having a heart attack from stress and exhaustion. Yeah, like I have to imagine at some point wrangling a movie of that size has got to be just yeah. a very stressful job. Like, yeah. I've, I'm, I'm glad that he's bowing out and, like, deciding to, like, go and do different stuff. Because it's, like, I I think one of the things that's great about the Marvel movies so far is, like, all the new blood that they've gotten in there for, like, all yeah. these different creative voices that have all been very interesting and distinct. And so it's, like, it's nice for, like, Joss Whedon to move out to get, like, other people to direct those kinds of movies. And then also I want Joss Whedon to go make his own stuff. You know? I, I, that's the other thing I was going to say. I'm really glad we got at least two movies with him. Yeah. Um, because, you know, no one else could have pulled off the Avengers like he did. Yeah. But, you know, he's Joss Whedon is too much of a national treasure, frankly, to just let him be doing this same yeah, thing Yeah, and he's and really good at making things from scratch. That's yes. like, I want him to, like, be able to make his own characters and stuff. I really hope when he goes back to TV, he doesn't make the mistake of going to network television again. I think he should just go and try to like make Firefly again. I think he should bring Firefly back. That's no, obviously but, what he's going to do. But you know, with his they're clout, going to bring Firefly back. And I don't know what he's interested in next. But I will say, with his clout, 
I'm sure any cable network would love to have him, and I think like an HBO Joss Whedon series. Yeah. Because if you've ever read like the history of Dollhouse, which is a good show, but a very kind of flawed one. Yeah, especially it, when you get to the end of season two, and it's just like, they, they tried no to budget. stuff like two seasons of story into like two episodes. And more than anything, Dollhouse was compromised by network restrictions. And if you read his original idea for it, it sounds fascinating to me, but it was basically a show about sex and sexual relations between humans. And you couldn't do that on a network. And I would like to see him explore maybe a more adult kind of thing in the future. But we'll talk about that next week with Avengers 2. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Last thing on the docket here before we get to Daredevil. Star Wars. Star Wars everywhere. There was Star Wars Celebration. Lots of intro, lots of news and everything. Yep. Let's get the easy ones out of the way first. Okay. Uh, Star Wars Battlefront. New game. We got our first look at it. How did it look to you? There was like a cinematic kind of trailer. Yeah. Like I, I really love Star Wars Battlefront 2. I played the shit out of that game. But and so it's like I'm excited to get new Star Wars games because it's been a really long time since we've had any. But like all the the buzz about this sounds like it's more a Star Wars skin for a Battlefield game and not like a true successor to the Battlefront franchise. So it, it might still be really good. Like I'll yeah. consider picking it up. But I'm not super excited about it the way I would be about a Battlefront three. If that yeah. had ever materialized And you know I didn't play a ton of Battlefront 2 back in the day So And I'm sure it's great And I, w- I would love to sometime But You know I'm just kind of I would love to get a good Star Wars game And yeah. As you say Not much of a sense of it yet Except it looks like they're making a fun use of the license And I'm looking forward to it You know It's not I'm going to buy it day one without reading a review But yeah. you know If it's good I would love to play it That's that's all there is to it And I, yeah. I do Overall with all the stuff we're going to talk about from Star Wars Celebration I like the kind of optimistic fun kind of reverent tone they have to all of this where we're going back to kind of original trilogy era stuff and we're really kind of you know it's not just nostalgia but that kind of nostalgic element with some new stuff and we're going to be playing in this universe and and you know kind of having some guilt-free fun with all of it i like that idea sure yeah getting that feeling from some of this stuff so they also announced uh as we know they're making star wars episodes you know seven eight nine and those will be coming out in you know by no Biannual Belie is twice a year, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Well, every two years there's going to be... I don't know how you say that. Every two you years... You just say it every two years. Okay. Uh, my sentence instruction wasn't allowing for it at first. Anyway, every two years we're going to have Star Wars episode, but then also in between we're going to have these spin-off movies, only one of which we know anything about. It's the one being directed by Gareth Edwards, who did Godzilla. Um, It'll be Godzilla fighting the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> I'd watch that. I would, yeah, and the giant <laughs> rancor comes in. Be awesome. So they've announced. Uh, we knew the title. It was Star Wars Rogue One, and this will be the first of the Star Wars anthology films, as they're calling them. Which I kind of like that as a title for. Yeah, sure. Yeah, anthology. just like I've, I'm. I'm interested in that idea of just telling a lot of stories yeah. set in the Star Wars universe that don't necessarily have to be tied to like a grand overarching trilogy. You can just right. be like, let's just make our fun like flying around in space shooting things movies. So let's make the Rogue Squadron movie. Yeah, so this is Rogue One, and they announced what the plot is. Did you hear about this? No. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I, yeah. Go yeah. On. So they said what the plot is, and it's um, it's about the team that steals the star, the the plan for the Death Star, leading up to a new hope. How many fucking times have like I feel like there have been three or four different times that Lucas has come out and been like, "We're telling the story of like how you how we got the plans for the Death Star." It's like, it was Kyle Katarn, and then it was this Twi'lek lady, and then it was someone else. It's like, yeah, okay, sure, we're doing that again. Yeah, and they say it's going to be a space adventure heist movie kind of thing. Yeah, that's um, kind of what I would have figured. The I, I'm a little disappointed in that as a story thing, because as you just said, I love the idea of every other year we just get a fun, 
you you take some talented people and just yeah. let them play in the Star Wars sandbox. But that's not what this is. That this is yeah. a direct prequel to the original Star Wars film. I don't need to know how they got yeah. the Death Star plans because unless it was just them telling the events of Dark Forces and you just had Kyle Katarn because Kyle Katarn is a really great character from the video games. That I sense we're not getting that because no, no, the... we're not because Kyle Katarn doesn't exist anymore because they just like fucking shat all over yeah. the expanded universe. So they well, just did away with all the good stuff and the bad stuff. I would say the star of this movie is Felicity Jones, who's a woman. Kyla Katarn. Kyla Katarn. They could do that. They could do that. Well, we'll see. Uh, anyway, so, I mean, Kyle Katarn could still be in it, I guess. That she's no, the only not. confirmed cast member, but I would suspect he would be the main character. They should get back the guy who played Kyle Katarn in the shitty FMV cutscenes from Dark Forces 2. <laughs> anyway, so do you get what I mean there? Just that it's, it's. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's something that I'm. You know, I'm a huge fan of Star Wars, but I'm. Like, the thing I'm most worried about, like. What they'll be doing with making all this stuff tied so tightly with the original trilogy, you know, with like having it's like, oh, we're bringing back like Luke and Leia and Han and stuff, is that I don't want them to be tied to the original trilogy with Star Wars. I would much prefer them to have set all this stuff like hundreds of years or something future in the Star Wars timeline and just made completely new characters. Like, like a new sort of era for that universe is like you can tell different kinds of stories with like what the state of the galaxy would have been in that like era that's what I would have ultimately preferred because I feel like the original trilogy stuff for me is kind of played out because it's like for someone who's a huge fan of Star Wars and consumed a lot of that expanded universe material like I don't need the continued adventures of those characters and like that like time period. It would be interesting to just like let's have new ship designs and like new problems and stuff like that and not have everything be tied to what the original trilogy was. And hopefully they will move to that point once they get past episode seven and like introduce all the new characters and stuff. Well yeah, and you know, to be fair, all the indications are that Han, Luke and Leia are in the movie, they are not the like the focal point yeah. you know, or main characters. So. I mean, I feel like that would not be ultimately clear if you just saw like that one trailer no I agree I'm just saying that's yeah yeah but yeah it's something that I hope the other anthology films are not like trying to fill in gaps of like the plot from like the original trilogy or something like that yeah I I don't I don't need the Death Star movie I don't need the Boba Fett movie I don't need any of that I you know but whatever yeah like remember that like weird time when they're like hey like there's a rumor that they're gonna make like a seven samurai version with like Jedi instead it's like that would be fucking awesome like that idea is a great fucking idea for a Star Wars movie yeah I would love to see some creativity like that yeah like there's so much there are so many stories that can be told in that universe because that universe is so rich that you don't have to do the how how did the fucking Star Wars how did the Death Star plans get stolen this time in this timeline yeah you know, and I, I hope it'll be a good movie. It totally could be with uh, Gareth Edwards, I think, is clearly from Godzilla, a massively talented director. Yeah. Um, you know, we had, I think, a couple of story quibbles with Godzilla, but not on the yeah. level of yeah, visuals yeah, like, and yeah, directing. The visual and, direction yeah. was fantastic. Uh, so, you know, I think he's a great fit for this universe, and I, Felicity Jones is a good actress, and the people writing it are talented. Um, so it'll hopefully be good. But I yeah. can't wait till the second anthology film is then going and telling the story about how the Rebel Alliance got formed because that's never been done before. I, I thought you were going to say the story of how they got the plans for the second Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a movie about all the Bothan spies being massacred. <laughs> all right, um, let's see. So and of course the big main event was when they rolled out the soccer droid. That was yeah the, BB-8. Yeah, who 
He's he's a cool little android. I'm it's, excited for BB-8. Yeah, it's a good droid design. Yeah. Like I thought, there were some people on the internet that were like, "Holy shit, look at this fucking robot!" And it's like, it's a droid, dude. Well, like Sh- they're but Sean, that was every reaction. Yeah. Here's here's what I'm gonna That's, say. It was, yeah, it was we're gonna be crazy. We're gonna we'll we'll talk about it in a second. We're gonna talk about the trailer. Okay, now. Yeah. Star Wars Episode Seven. This was the big news. It broke the internet. You know, all of that had like I think 24 million views in less than 24 hours. It was crazy. Um, but anyway, so. I really like this trailer. And frankly, I like a lot of the stuff I heard out of Comic-Con, or uh, Celebration, Star Wars Celebration, yeah. whatever it's called. You know, I like this trailer. It made me smile. I like all the different little things I'm seeing. I didn't love necessarily the, you know, story they announced for Rogue One, but I like a lot of things they said about it and those sorts of things. But here's the difference, is I can like all of those things and still get a little annoyed when all those little indications that are undeniably, that's a cool little indication, becomes, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened yeah. to humanity, oh my god! Yeah, it's like, did you see that fucking Chewbacca and Han Solo? And it's like, I fucking know. Like, there's like a certain degree of effusiveness about it on the internet that was like, shut the fuck up, people. Like, it's, yeah, it's Star Wars, I get it. I fucking love Star Wars death. Fucking, you don't need to go crazy for like the new droid design, yeah, or the can the yeah, like or like you know this is, the trailer's good, but it's not like the most mind blowing movie trailer ever seen, you know. Yeah, and there's nothing like in that trailer that is like made me super excited about the direction of the movie because there's not like anything substantial in the trailer. There's like everyone was just really excited about it. it's like oh it looks cool or it's like oh Han Solo's in it. It's like I it kind of took those things for granted. Like, I would be interested in, like, something a little bit meatier to sort of, like, get me excited about, like, what the movie's going to be. Yeah, and here's the thing. I, I really like this teaser. I think just as a teaser, if you take it on those terms, I think it's really effective. I think it plays off of nostalgia well while also just giving you some nice glimpses of the new stuff we have in there. It, you know, it's, it's, it's well-paced, it gets exciting, and it ends on a really nice warm note. I've watched it about four times now, and every time we get Chewy, we're home, I smile and smile. I just think it's a really nice little moment to end it on. I think it's a good teaser. If this were the first teaser we got in December, yes, I would be even more positive, yeah. though. I think if this were the first teaser we saw for this new universe, it's a great teaser. Yes. As the second one... It's really frustrating. It's a little frustrating because you're, they, they clearly want all of this hype of people kind of overanalyzing everything when it's just a teaser. And if you take it by that, I don't think it does anything wrong. It's just fine as a teaser. It's, it's better than fine. It's a good teaser. But we are at the point where the hype train is kind of at, we're going to, you know, no matter what they release, we're going to analyze the shit out of it. Yeah. And... Yeah, you know, it's it's tough. Do you blame the teaser? Do you blame the fandom? Where do you go with it? Either way, a little annoying. Yeah, it's just like, like you, you really hit the nail on the head about, like, that's how I felt about it. That Like, if this was our first glimpse at the movie, it's like, yeah, like, fine. Like, because it kind of did the things that I said that the first teaser should have done of having, like, make your first reveal of the movie, like, the nostalgia stuff, and, like, have your, like, dumb, like, I wanted it to be Luke because... Like, I love Harrison Ford, and I like Han Solo as a character, but I don't know what you do with Han Solo as a character that's interesting anymore, like, in story-wise. Like, he just doesn't have anything. Like, he just has no place in the universe, I feel like. Like, he should have died at the end of Return of the Jedi, like Harrison Ford wanted. But, like, you know, you have that, like, the fun moment with Han Solo and Chewie at the end. It's like, yeah! And you have, like, the voiceover with Luke, and you have, like, a glimpse of, like, Darth Vader and stuff. And then you get, like, a bunch of quick cuts of all the random, like, the new villain and the new characters and stuff. But no context for what any of that stuff is. 
as like a first glimpse that would have been fine but like as the second glimpse it's like i fucking want like who are these people that you keep on cutting to like a line of dialogue some sort of context like a fucking name for god's sake like give me something like i don't want to refer to it as like the girl and the black stormtrooper and the guy who looks like darth revan like fucking give me something you should talk about oscar isaac the the fighter pilot no, the guy, the oh. villain is the guy who looks like Darth Vader. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, and yeah, and the guy who's okay. like the Rogue Squadron dude. Like, who the fuck are these people? Why do you keep on cutting to them? Are they extras? Like, presumably not. Presumably they're main characters in the movie. I have no fucking clue because they don't... They literally tell you nothing about any of those characters and all you get is some voiceover from Luke that's very vague that indicates that there's some sort of Force-sensitive person that's going to be related to the Skywalker family in the movie in some way. And then you get Han Solo saying, Chewie, we're home, which probably was referring to the Millennium Falcon. I don't know. They're on the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, but... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But no, it's... And... Yeah. I just... And... I want to I know something about the movie. And that's like... That was the thing that made it... The reaction to it so frustrating is that to me, with this being the second teaser... And then this one being the one that's so focused on, like, having the Luke voiceover and the Han Solo stuff, is that it just kind of felt pandering to me as a Star Wars fan of it, trying to, like, feeding you this trailer that's just, like, all it is is Star Wars, like, vaguely Star Wars stuff. And so it's supposed to make you really excited for it, because it's like, oh, there's stormtroopers in it, and there's a Star Destroyer that's crashed on this planet. But, like... As a someone who's interested in watching a good Star Wars movie, it gave me nothing to sort of sink my teeth into and look at it as like, oh, this is kind of the direction they're taking it. Or it's like, oh, that seems like an interesting new character to add into the movie, like the universe. It doesn't give me any of that. So it's like, it's something that, it just felt like it was nostalgia pandering to me, which is something that I don't want from Star Wars anymore because Star Wars has been doing that for like decades, for longer than I've been alive, you know? Yeah. You know, I have high hopes for this movie. I think it's going to be good. I think people are, you know, I think everyone involved is clearly um, putting their best foot forward. And, you know, part of this, I, well, I, I should say I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. Um, although, say, I, I think it's, you know, I can totally understand you said you, you wanted to see Luke. For me, it's like, I, I am enough of a Harrison Ford fan where even though I actually completely agree with you on the Han Solo point. Yeah, it's like, what the fuck is he doing? Like, what is he going though, to do? He's just a fucking, like, rebel smuggler dude. He has no, like, marketable skills in the un- universe. Like, he should be, like, drunk in some alley, like, almost dead or something, you know? Like, that's the place that Han Solo would realistically be I in, know. like, the post-Jedi uh, universe. Right. But anyway, I'm just saying that my... You you got you guys all know my love for Harrison yeah. Ford and stuff. I so that just was a nice moment, and I love. I mean, Chewbacca's like my favorite character. So sure, fuck it, I, I like that. But I get where you're coming from. I actually, I'm I'm predicting. I don't think we see Luke until the movie. I think they're holding that for the film. I don't think Maybe, we're going to yeah. see him in the trailers because I mean, all the saw his like robot right. Hand. All the rumors though is that the the movie is a search for Luke. That's what yeah. the plot will be in part. And I think actually Han Solo could work in that context yeah, if like he's facilitating he the young characters yeah. to get somewhere. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, but what I was going to say with all this is that I think a lot of the hype is coming from a lot of kind of extra textual things outside of the trailer. Like, outside of the trailer, they actually have told us the names of all these characters. And of the planet. And and we've had interviews with them. And that's all kind of interesting stuff. But 
it, it, it all becomes a little too cop teasy. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm really mad that I know that the villain in the movie is called Kylo Ren, but I know that because, like, I read it on a website and not because it was, like, something that was in the trailer or something, right. you know? Like, it's just, like, stupid that, like, if you're going to release that information, like, have a fucking trailer that has some, like, I don't want them to give the plot away because that's something that's really frustrating about trailers. But, you know, like, the Avengers 2 trailer, like, the original Avengers 2 trailer did not, like, have almost no dialogue in it and didn't show, like, Ultron or anything. Like, it showed that Ultron was the villain and that, like, shit goes down. And that's, like, that's what I need from the trailer. It's, like, this doesn't even show, it's, like, you know, I don't know who the villain is, what, like, even what a vague motivation I don't know what his position is. Like, I don't know why there are stormtroopers still. Like, I don't know what the state of the universe is. I don't know who any of the characters are. It's not like, you know, there's nothing to go off of. All I know is that, like, someone has Darth Vader's helmet and it's all melted. That Luke still has a robot hand and that he patted R2 on the head. Somebody handed somebody else Darth Vader's lightsaber. And that Han Solo and Chewie are on the Millennium Falcon and that they're home. That's that's the like actual substantial information I gleaned from the trailer, yeah. and this is like, and it's frustrating that all that is stuff that has nothing to do with anything that's new because I'm way more interested in the new stuff than I am about the old stuff. Yeah, and you know, and that's the thing. I think all the interviews people give agree with that, but maybe there's a little bit of tension there between what everyone working on the movie is saying and what the marketing is showing. Yes, yeah. so we'll see. I, I will say this: yeah. they are masterfully stirring people into a tizzy. Yeah. About this I mean Whatever opinions you have On the trailer and all that Whoever's marketing this Is a fucking genius Because they have They learn that people Will go crazy For nostalgia stuff the, I, I I This movie's gonna set Some records I just yeah. I have to imagine This is gonna be Big Because they are They are playing people Like a fiddle yeah. With this stuff so far You know God knows when we actually Get a line of dialogue In the trailer Yeah for a new character Yeah but... that's Shit's gonna go down You know but whatever, We're, we'll we'll get there eventually. For now, let's talk about. We've been talking about. I can't wait till in the next trailer, like the only line we have from a new character is like the black stormtrooper guy saying, "I've got a bad feeling about this," and that's it. <laughs> I predict now that's going to be what it is. Man, I hope they they avoid that mistake. Like someone is watching the Terminator Genesis trailers and saying, "All right, we're not going to do that." But yeah, or like. Actually, this would be a really, like, a good moment. It would be, like, Luke telling one of the characters, may the Force be with you. That's actually something that they probably should have done. It's assuming that happens in the movie. Yeah. That's going to happen in the movie. No, it's not. That is going to fucking happen in the movie. Luke is going to... Luke isn't going to say, may the Force be with you uh, Luke's not even in the movie, man. That's why they're not showing him. Because Mark Hamill's fucking dead. He's been dead for years. That's the true... That's the true secret of the movie. So the internet has driven you crazy and you are now a conspiracy theorist. Exactly, yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking about intangible things for a while. Let's go ahead and talk about something a little more palpable, and that is Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix. So, Sean, uh, yes. Daredevil premiered a couple weeks ago on Netflix, all 13 episodes. We gave our brief, spoiler-free opinion early on. Yes, we did. Um, not sure how we want to go about this. There's lots of stuff to talk about here, yeah. obviously. I guess let's just start, you know, we, we want to talk about the characters and the plot and maybe individual episodes and stuff. But let's just start again with kind of the general reactions. So you told us at the start of the show just kind of you thought, you know, it was a good interpretation and, uh, you know, a really kind of uh, fun and interesting show and had yeah. a good Daredevil and Kingpin. Let's go in a little more depth. Um, what would you say to kick this conversation off? Um, I guess like something like to talk about that we can just talk about very generally about the show is that outside of all of that stuff, I think that the show was really just like well made. You know, like it was really well shot. There, it had a sort of a very distinctive visual identity. I thought, and then like 
the action was to me unbelievable for a TV show. Just like the sort of they really really went for a really brutal kind of kung fu style of fighting that I'm a huge fan of and that I really appreciated. And they drew a lot of inspiration from movies like Old Boy and stuff like that and a lot of their action scenes. Like, obviously, the big standout is the hallway scene at the end of episode two. But it's just like, you know, like, action is not the most important thing for this stuff, but the action scenes have been really lackluster in most super movie, superhero movies. And so it's really nice to just have, like, this really meaty, visceral impactful sort of action for a superhero thing when most of the time I feel like, you know, like the action scenes in like the Batman movies are all really bad other than like the big set piece kind of car chase stuff, like the actual like hand-to-hand fighting other than the fight between Batman and Bane like midway through Dark Knight Returns, Dark Knight Rises, what the fuck that Rises. Called. And it's the best yeah. action scene probably in that whole trilogy. Yeah, like that's the only good one right. that's like a just actual straight like fight scene in that whole trilogy and Daredevil like Every week. Yeah, like every single episode basically has at least one like really fucking awesome fight scene and some of them have just like incredible scenes, you know? I agree with all of that for 12 of the 13 episodes. I thought the finale was awful and we're going to talk about sure, that later. Yeah. But and I wouldn't go so far as to say awful, but it's definitely I, really I thought awful, but we'll go with, we'll get there later. Um, in part because I thought it betrayed all of that, but we'll get there. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that because and I think it's an important point to make because... I think scale is one of the things I want to talk about with this show because this is a TV show and I think it embraces all the great things about TV and how TV has all these advantages over movies. Mm -hmm. But one of the disadvantages it often has is you just, you naturally have a smaller budget and more important than the budget, you have a more reduced shooting schedule and things like that. So it's tough to do something like the hallway fight or frankly any of the hand-to-hand combat stuff in here which is usually pretty ambitious and pretty accomplished. And this... Except for episode 13, nothing in this series felt compromised to me because they were on TV. This felt like what Daredevil should be. There was no moment where I was watching the series and thinking, this is good, but wouldn't it have been cool if they could have done the Daredevil movie and this would have been better? I never felt that. And I think that goes for the action, but equally it just goes for just general cinematography stuff. Like, so much of the series happens at night. And when series and movies happen at night... Sometimes it just becomes a visual mess. I think yeah. you get a little of that with the with Batman Begins. He fixed that by the second and third movies, but you get a little bit of that there. A lot of other superhero movies do that, where you know, and, and just movies in general are kind of into the dark stuff now. But I think yeah. it takes a very talented crew to pull that off. And you know, uh, Phil Abraham. Uh, I pulled up the list here because I wanted to remember his name. He's the director who did episodes one and two, so he set the look for the series. And uh, if you don't know, he's he's worked on Mad Men and a lot of the other recent great cable shows. And I think he brings that same aesthetic to this. And then obviously all the directors who came afterwards, um, a couple other notable names on here, did a lot of that stuff too. Where they just really, I think, thought a lot about the visuals for each scene. The sets are good. The costuming is fantastic. Yeah. Um, there is that sense of visceral impact to all of the action. But when you're cutting away to that, because the majority of the show isn't action. It just... Yeah. It can't be. It's a TV show. That'd be weird. Um, you know, the majority of a superhero movie usually isn't action. Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff, I think, looks and sounds and feels interesting and compelling, too. You know, I thought there were a couple episodes that were too long, and I kind of wish someone would have set a time limit on a couple of them. But overall, I thought the time, you know, they used their hour well. And yeah. the things were well-paced, and I felt carried through each episode very well. So they really got that sense of scale right. And in terms of the other thing I wanted to talk about to kind of kick this off is using TV format. Because I think 
you know, we're in a kind of golden age of superhero movies in terms of what Marvel's doing. Maybe not anyone else, but yeah. Marvel's got it down, and that's... I mean, that's half of your superheroes, basically, yeah. so that's still, that's doing pretty good. Right, and, you know, so Marvel is doing a really good job, uh, and we're getting a lot of good superhero movies, and that's great, but... The weird thing is movies are not, I think, the first medium I would think of if I'm reading a comic book and I'm saying, how do I want to adapt this? Yeah. I think movies are actually pretty far down on the list. I would go video games and TV shows first yeah. because it's a serialized format. And so I do think you inherently in some comic book movies, for certain superheroes, I feel like you're losing something. Like, we have two good Spider-Man movies out of five. But overall, I think there is always this kind of sense that Spider-Man doesn't work on film because... Yeah, that it's like there is a... Even though I really, really love Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 1, the Sam yeah. Raimi ones, yeah, like there are lots of aspects of the character that just don't work in a like big, single, long story arc. You Because know? a, a film has to be one story yeah. and it has to be a big story for mm-hmm. this kind of movie at least. You can't just do a little story where Spider-Man goes to high school and fights, you know, Paste Pot Pete. And that's the movie. (laughs) And I've seen some people arguing that that should be how they do a Spider-Man movie. And the thing is, I don't know if that can work. I I think that's something that is just so much better suited to comics and TV shows. For a movie, you have to have some kind of big overall sense of theme and thrust to carry you through. And so, you know, that works for Iron Man. It works for Cap. They've made it work for a lot of these people. For Thor. Um, They've made it work for a lot of these characters. But I also think there's a limit to that. Like, I don't... I don't really want to see Iron Man 4 at this point because I think they've probably played that out solo. I don't think we need a ton more Captain America movies because I'm not sure how far you can take that in that format. I think that's also like one of the things with the Fantastic Four movies. Yeah. Like like those characters are very much suited for that sort of very serialized format where those themes of family are a lot easier to sort of like play with and come across and like the tone is much easier to manage when you don't have to have like the big world ending storyline you're trying to get across. Right. And so while I think, you know, uh, Drew Goddard and Stephen DeKnight and Phil Abraham and all the people who made this show, they probably could have gotten together and made a really good Daredevil movie. Clearly, TV was what this needed to be. Yeah. Because in a TV show, you get to go so much deeper on, you know, what is the week-to-week stuff Daredevil does? Day-to-day, how does Matt Murdock live? What is his code of ethics? How does he look at the world? How does he look at his friends? How does he look at himself? And you can ask all that in a movie, but it has to be kind of surface level because you've only got two hours and you have bigger stuff to get to. But here, you can kind of get into that every episode. You can extend the supporting ensemble because clearly for Daredevil, that is such an important part of that character is you have to have all these other people who are really all kind of refracting back on him thematically. Yeah. I think, you know, Karen and Foggy and the Kingpin and everyone else is in some sense a reflection of what Matt is going through too. Because, you know, this is about a town and a community and you do get a sense of community in this show and that's part of what works so well. You can also develop a villain in the way that, frankly, movie villains are tough because they have to come in and be one shade kind of for the movie and, and there's not a lot because we know the heroes better. Here, Kingpin really got to be a co-lead at times. Yeah. And and that confront, you know, they fumbled the ending, but theoretically the confrontation could mean something because of that. Um, so, you know, I really do think the TV aspect of it, I was watching this and I was going, this is great, this feels right, I want more superheroes this way. Yeah. I definitely. would love to see Spider-Man this way. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see the Fantastic Four this way. Frankly, I think you could do it with some of the superheroes in movies now. You know, you could never do Thor like this for budgetary reasons. Yeah. But I was watching this show, and I was just saying to myself, this works. 
you know this this is this is right and I want to see more of this and 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 so I think you combine those two things that the style was just so good and didn't feel compromised and yet they also used the televisual medium to its fullest yeah and there's something that I really liked about the structure of the show that I like that you know even though they they definitely designed it so that like you could just like watch episode after episode after episode and not necessarily get fatigued that way but each episode did feel like if I just had sat down and watched that episode and then had to do something else like that would have been fine because it's like the episodes while it is a there is an overarching story each episode feels like thematically constructed around itself you know there are several episodes like the one with the the ninja that like you know kind of wrap back on themselves chronologically and sort of like are very focused in on themselves that that gave each episode a really powerful focus that that was a big part of what made the show fun to watch but then it each episode then built up to a much larger overall narrative absolutely and i think in terms of you know how they treated the story and characters it's also just interesting like these guys clearly were just so smart about how they went around about this because i you know, kind of consistently I would think of alright this episode was good but you know here's what I thought I needed more of or here was a problem and then like immediately as soon as I thought that they would cover that yeah did you feel that at all like mm-hmm. in episode one I thought Foggy was uh, like untenably broad like I watched yeah. and I was like I don't I don't know if this is right this this character seems just a little abrasive I don't know if I like this and then immediately episode two Foggy and Karen go on a pub crawl and it's one of the best things they did in this whole series yeah. and there you go from that moment on they are doing right by Foggy uh, later in the series it had been a couple episodes since they'd even mentioned Matt's Catholicism and I thought well that's a part of the character I find fascinating I want more of that oh episode nine we're gonna go all in on that and that is the best episode of the series and frankly i would put up next to any marvel movie including captain america winter soldier and the avengers i think it's that good but so it's just and and just just stuff like that where or or even i think uh episode three they finally give you a little bit of kingpin or fisk and i thought you know they're kind of teasing too much about this and then he rips a dude's head off with the door and then you have all the stuff with uh daredevil in the building and even then I'm thinking, you know, Fisk is interesting so far. He's crazy. Um, but, you know, this part with the woman he's dating, that seems a little like, I've seen this before. Oh, no, shit, she's crazy too. Yeah. And they're going full Lady Macbeth with this. Constantly I felt like I had an expectation and then they would do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, it was the, what I was kind of saying with the episode structures. I feel like they compartmentalize the episode so well yeah. that it's like they don't try to do everything in every single episode, you know? Like, they don't have to have a bunch of Kingpin stuff in every single episode, or they don't have to have a bunch of Foggy in every single episode. Like, there are some episodes where some of those characters are way in the background, and episode one with Foggy is one of those episodes. But then, as soon as you get, like, that character back in the spotlight, they're able to, like, cover that material in a different way. The same thing is, like, if the Catholicism stuff had been brought up in every single episode in some way, it would have gotten really tiring. The fact that it's, like, it's kind of introduced early on, and, like, the priest kind of pops up a couple of times, and then you, like you said with episode nine, it's like, you get, it real it deals with it as a heavy thematic point, like, straightforward. That's something that's really refreshing, because it feels then different, that you weren't, like, doing, like, okay, now we're doing the Catholicism thing again, or now we're doing Foggy again. It's like, they allow those story and thematic points to sort of, like, take a, a break and develop other stuff. And so that way it feels fresh again when they bring it back up and evolve it in a different direction. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about some of the characters because yeah. this show does a lot of stuff well and a couple things not so well, but I do think the thing they do best is the character work. Yeah. Which makes it a Marvel show. Yeah. <laughs> Darn yeah, it. Definitely. You know? uh, so let's just start with the, the man himself, Matt Murdock, Charlie Cox, 
I thought Charlie Cox was fantastic. Fuck yeah. Every bit as good of casting as Chris Evans' Cap or Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. Just someone at Marvel knows how to cast yeah. these characters. So what did you think of Matt? I think he's fucking great. Like, you know, the, like one of the things, it's not absolutely 100% necessary for every single one, like, char- like superhero character. But it's always really nice when your actor looks like the guy does in the comics. And that's something that, like, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. looks fucking exactly like Tony Stark from the comics. And Charlie Cox looks exactly fucking like Matt Murdock. Like, it is, especially when he's, like, wearing the, like, not the, the Daredevil suit, but, like, the normal, like, just walking around suit and has the glasses on. Like, the guy just looks like he just got, like, jumped out of the fucking comic book page. It's really crazy. Just his facial structure and his hair and everything look exactly like the character from the comics. But then also, like, I feel like he just nails everything about the performance. I think his, the voice, like, the quality of his voice, like, he just sounds like how I imagine Matt Murdock sounding. I should say, he's British and he's doing an yeah, accent? Yeah, He's does a good American accent. It's a really, really good American accent, yeah. Like, it's, it's basically impossible to tell if you didn't know that he was British. Yeah. But yeah, it's just everything about his performance, I feel like he's... He's restrained in a lot of ways that I find very interesting, that it's like he, you know, Matt Murdock is not a character that's super, like emotional and out there all the time and like he's someone that I feel like he's very you know because they're especially like from the Frank Miller era of Daredevil there's a lot of sort of like eastern stuff that's of kind of eastern philosophy that got like sort of bred into the character I feel like he brings a lot of that in there that it's like he's not you know super emotional all the time he's very sort of internalized he's very like focused and a lot of that sort of emotion he doesn't express it in a lot of ways and I also feel like there's sort of like that Catholic element of the character that he takes so much into himself and internalizes so much of like, like sort of like that guilt and that blame and his mission and he has to hide it and conceal it and I found that like aspect of the character it's very subtle in the way he brings it about but it's it's very effective aspect of the character that sort of like the tension in him that's always there I absolutely agree and I think he's so good and I think he conveys so much with so little I actually thought in the first two episodes I didn't need the flashbacks I thought they were well Mm -hmm. done but I pretty consistently was thinking I actually don't need this because one of my favorite scenes in the whole series is the second scene of the show so the first scene is that flashback to how he gets blind and then we have it's like a five minute monologue he's in the confessional and he's about to go become Daredevil and I thought that was dynamite. Such yeah. a great start to the show. And I thought, I got through that. I'm like, well, I didn't need to see him get blind. And I don't need to see his origin story because he just said everything. And I think how he wears all of that then in his body language and all of that. Um, I think the flashbacks in episode two are necessary. I don't know if I needed them that early because I almost would have liked to have just sat with that mm-hmm. character a little longer before we got specifics. Yeah. Uh, and it's not a big, I'm not saying yeah. they, like they were wrong. I get it. But it's just, he's a compelling enough character that was like, I really I'm, like the ambiguities he kind of lives with, you yeah. know? And it is something that, like, it it really makes you appreciate that they don't go, like, full speed ahead with, like, the origin stuff, you know? It's like, when he gets blinded, like, that's a really short, quick scene at the right. very beginning. Yeah, that, and it's like, all those, because I, I really like the flashback, because I just really loved his relationship with his dad. Like, oh, it's I really, well done. I really loved their version of Jack Murdoch and stuff. But it's like, I love that they don't make the first episode of the show all the stuff where it's like, oh, like, J- Jack Murdoch is this noble boxer who's, like, but kind of down on its luck. And then these guys, like, these kind of, like, mobster guys hire him to, you know, throw a fight. But then he doesn't want to throw the fight, so he's, like, kind of sticks up for himself and his, his sort of self-worth. And then he gets killed. 
is that's like you know that's the origin of Daredevil in a kind of a nutshell. It's like I like that they didn't do that and they didn't try to tie Kingpin into his origin, which is something that's always really frustrating with superhero stuff where they like try to like make like everything revolving around the origin and they really kind of like Amazing Spider-Man yeah, 2 Amazing Spider-Man way of just like oh like everything comes from like the exact same kernel and like it's like this weird kind of fate he is, thematic stuff that you're dealing with he is the one true chosen Spider-Man yeah exactly like they don't do that like they they sort of like they have a few flashbacks in episode 1 and episode 2 but then after that they never do the flashback stuff again and all those flashback stuff feel like they're more set up for sort of, like, giving you insight into aspects of the character and not setting up, like, big plot things, you know? Absolutely. So it's like, they don't, like, hit you in the face with the origin and then knock you to the ground and, like, hit you in the head with it over and over and over and over again. They just, like, sidestep the origin. Like, they don't even, they don't even really go into, like, how much of his powers are, like, supernatural and stuff like that. Like, they don't go into, like, what was the chemical and shit like that. It's just, like, you just have to, like, accept it and move on. And that's something I want to talk about. I really, really like, uh, for the most part, how they handle his powers on this show and his blindness. Because this is the other thing I want to talk about. With Charlie Cox's performance and the writing, it's, it's equal parts here. I think they do a really good job of just, more than anything, making him feel human and not mm-hmm. this broad... He is archetypal, and that's okay. But not like this broad stereotype or something. Because I, I just briefly have to bring the Ben Affleck movie into this because it's True, an example yeah. of how to go wrong. In the Ben Affleck movie, Daredevil is not... Disabled, he he can see fully. Like they just yeah. show it as he can just see. He basically has sight. His other senses is just compensated for that. One thing I like they did here is he is still blind. Yeah, and I don't know if you would call that a disability for this guy because he is clearly so able bodied. Yeah, but the way everything happens is it's not that he can see. Even the one moment where they do the world on fire thing, that's not sight. It's an amalgamation of all these other senses. And I thought throughout they did a really nice, subtle job where they kind of introduced it all step by step and let you just kind of observe it, of showing how he uses mostly his ears, but also smell and taste and just feel and just, you know, reflexes to build this kind of, um, to build this power set. And so it, and then, you know, that even means that in fights, he is often on top but not always he can yeah. get beat up he can get really hurt he can be totally out of his depth and you wonder sometimes all right even with all these powers you have man should you be doing this mm-hmm. i think they did a good job with that like it's a much more sensitive portrayal of a blind guy than the ben affleck movie was because if yeah. you remember that movie he's doing the weird cross-eyed thing that blind people don't actually do sure. yeah. and yeah. you know charlie cox looks like an actual blind person does where he's not really necessarily looking at anything yeah um but he's also not doing weird shit with his eyes that blind people again don't actually do yeah it's not a caricature at all i think Mm -hmm. it's actually a really sensitive performance that then they graft all of these superpowers onto in a really kind of smart way and i I really liked that consistently yeah yeah without a doubt it actually reminded me very recently i watched through the whole satoichi movies for those who don't know it's this long series of japanese films about this character Zatoichi, who's this sort of like wandering blind swordsman, and one of the great things about that character is that like even though he's obviously like he's this awesome swordsman, and at the every, end of every movie he like ends up cutting down like fifty dudes, in, like some huge fight. You always in like the, he's obviously able to compensate for his blindness, but you always feel like there are some things that he can't do because he's blind, and that that character sometimes really feels that loss, and you feel that loss with him. That it's just, like there are mistakes he makes. Or, like, things that, like, he just can't experience because of that. And it's, like, obviously, like, he's 
like it doesn't prevent him from being the hero character but it makes him sympathetic in interesting ways i think like there's not as much of it in daredevil but there, it's still there like you still definitely feel like it's like you know there are things that this character can't do or is missing out on or like things that like he has lost because he has lost his sight and it's not just that yeah it's like super like, the hearing and everything don't just like completely make up for it you know yeah like just simple things like he can't magically read you know yeah, exactly he has to use the braille thing for his computer he still, or like his phone has to like right. the alarm thing on the phone and stuff. Yeah. He is still someone who, you know, has he's compensated for these things spectacularly, yeah. but he is still compensating. It's yeah. it's uh and that's and that makes the character interesting. It it doesn't, you know, it, it's a it's a tough thing to do when you're portraying a character with a disability, even if it's a superhero with a disability. Yeah. But they did a really good job with that and Charlie Cox does it so well. And the other thing I want to talk about here is I love the way Charlie Cox differentiates between Matt Murdock and Daredevil, where one, he doesn't do a stupid bat voice when he's yeah. in the Daredevil costume, and two, I think he doesn't simplify it to the degree like Batman usually is, where one is a put-on and one is not. I think Matt and Daredevil are equally real in a lot of ways. Yeah. Obviously, some of it is a put-on with the, like, the cane and stuff. He doesn't really need it, and yeah. he uses it for appearances. Um, you know, maybe it helps in some scenarios, but it's not essential. Yeah. But other than that, I think Matt is a very, you know, honest, earnest guy, and that is who he is. Mm-hmm. And I think at Daredevil, that's another side of his personality, and that's the whole kind of dance for him in the series is, who am I, and am I somewhere in between, or am I one of these extremes? Yeah. And, and that's just so nice because it's not reductive in the way we talked about earlier with a lot of Batman storytelling, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, it feels like Daredevil isn't, like, like, neither Matt Murdock nor Daredevil are these, like, manufactured personalities the way that, like, either Batman or usually Bruce Wayne for the Batman character are, like, just these completely manufactured personas. It's, like, it feels like Daredevil is part of Matt, and it's, like, it's something that he sort of indulges in, kind of, like, in a Spider-Man way, but it's not, like, a full identity one way or the other. Like, there's some things he has to hide about himself when he's Daredevil, and there's some things he has to hide about himself when he's Matt Murdock, you know? Yeah. Is it episode... Th- uh, I, I don't remember the exact episode, but it's it's two or three or something where... Maybe it's four, where uh, Matt meets the Rosario Dawson character, mm-hmm. who... We'll talk about in a minute. She would... Anyway. Uh, but... And that's a really good episode where they're in the building together, and she finds him in the dumpster. Yeah. And, you know, he gets the mask pulled off and everything... And that's a really interesting one where he has to go seamlessly from, you know, he's, when he's got the mask on, he's Daredevil. When it's off, he's Matt would be our binary thing. But really, it's all mixed in those moments. Yeah. And I think all of his moments with, what's her name, Claire? Claire is the... Yeah, yeah. Clara, I think. Claire, yeah, whatever it was. Um, that's a character that I think brings out such an interesting side of Matt and why I thought it was so utterly bizarre they kicked her off the show seven episodes Yeah. In. But... <laughs> I mean, we'll just talk about her really quickly. I think Rosario Dawson was really good, Mm -hmm. brought out good sizes of the character, and then after episode six, actually, the one in the building, you see her one more time, and that's it. And she's a main cast member. That was bizarre. Yeah, like, it feels like they're setting her up to be in the other Netflix series. Yeah, maybe. Like, I think, specifically, she's going to be in the Luke Cage stuff. Okay. Knowing stuff about that character, she's going to be in the Luke Cage stuff. Okay. I'm just saying, like, for the six episodes she's in... Uh, she feels like as integral as Karen or Foggy yeah. or anyone else, and then she just drops off the face of the earth. That was weird. Yeah, like they, they could have handled her exit a little bit better, but yeah, like it's something that, like I, yeah, she was really, really good when she was there, and I, and it's like the main thing that made me appreciate is that they didn't, and this is true of the whole series, they never went into the really kind of cliche, dull, 
like love triangle thing between Matt, Foggy, and Karen. Whereas that's like the only the, the only romance on the show is Fisk and yeah, his girlfriend. like because that's the like the original Daredevil comics, which are most of the ones that I've actually read. Is like they're like that's sort of one of the main sort of like staying points was that it's like oh like they're all kind of in love with each other yeah. and it's like this kind of dull love triangle and I feel like they're kind of hints in the show about like you know Karen and Foggy and like Karen and Matt and like how they have like this affection for each other but they they never like they never make it this really frustrating love triangle. I thing. agree, and we're going to talk about Karen and Foggy individually in a second. Yeah. But I did want to just say. I think the biggest character success to me is the three of them together because yeah. they managed to make a really interesting, compelling, you know, threesome there as the main core of the show without ever, as you say, bringing a love triangle into it. Yeah. Like, I get the sense that I do think Foggy and Karen are attracted to each other in a lot of ways, and I, and I hope that becomes a romance someday because that's a pairing that makes sense to me. Yeah. But I liked it on the flip side. Karen and Matt, I think, kind of see each other as brother and sister almost. It's very... Yeah. It's that it's it's a lot. It's very platonic on that side, and I think it's it's platonic in a lot of ways with Foggy and Karen. While you also see how they fulfill each other's needs in a certain way too. So, yeah. and then Foggy and Matt being the other side, not romantic but very bromantic. Yes, and seeing that, and just every side of that triangle works so well. And I again in that they fixed my problems as soon as I had them in the middle portion of the series. They're kind of diffuse and they're all doing their own stuff. And then around episode eight, they come back together, and the rest of the series is the three of them working yeah. together, and that's really satisfying. Mm-hmm. So they used that main, you know, trio really, really well. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So I know you've Foggy. Foggy was awesome. Why was Foggy awesome, Sean? Well, I mean, the main reason is because Foggy Nelson is one of the most intolerable characters in the comics. Like he's because he's just like, you know, like Happy Hogan from Iron Man is like the basically the same character. It's just this like both played by John Favreau. Yeah. So, yeah, in, like, various incarnations. Yeah. But, yeah, they are both these, like, kind of goofy comic relief characters that are there to create a love triangle, and that's basically the only reason they exist is to make the love triangle possible and then also to deliver really dumb jokes. And that's all that Foggy Nelson ever really was. And, like, I'm, I'm sure that, like, crazy fucking shit must have happened to Foggy Nelson that I don't know about. Like, I don't know anything about, like, where that character went past, like, the 70s. I'm sure he became, like, five different superheroes and, like, has, like, probably robot arms or something. I have no idea. But, yeah, in the show, I, like like you said, like, when the first episode, I was really worried that it was like, oh, no. It's like, because I had forgotten that Foggy Nelson even existed because he's just a really blame nothing character in the comics. And I was like, oh, shit, that's right, Daredevil. Like, Foggy Nelson, like, I hate that character. And it seemed like his, he was going to be everything that I did not like about Foggy Nelson. It's like... Oh, it's just going to be a bunch of dumb jokes, and it's never—he's never going to make sense as a lawyer, like because it's always like this goofy comic relief character that's supposed to be this really smart lawyer, and all that shit is never going to work out. And it's just going to be fucking awful. And then as soon as like episode two starts, and like you get to see more of him and you get to see different sides of him, you realize it's like they created this really three-dimensional, fully fleshed-out character in Foggy Nelson that he does not feel like he is the comic relief sidekick character. He feels like. He is Matt Murdock's buddy. That that he is a very he's a goofy guy, but he's also a very capable lawyer. And so it's like it feels like a natural part of the character that he like t- tells like the kind of some of the dumb jokes, and he is like uses that like the humor as a defense mechanism as a part of himself. But then it also makes sense that he would be a guy who would be able to start this like two man sort of defense attorney business with 
uh, Matt and be really effective and be able to like you know maneuver around things in a legal sense and be really effective in that way and be a charming interesting individual once you get to know him you know the way that like you feel like that guy would be in real life if like the shows or movies that use that kind of character archetype were able to flesh them out like the kind like he is the the ideal of like what those character representations are trying to work towards and almost always they fall apart it's like this show I think absolutely nails it well that's the thing can you do Foggy this well in a movie no absolutely you, you not can't. you would you just can't, couldn't give him enough character time it's like the, you get long extended sequences that don't have that Matt is not involved with that you're just following around Foggy doing whatever he's doing with Karen or whoever else you know yeah no and I think the big thing is Eldon Henson who plays him He's very charming and charismatic and good in the part, and he has chemistry with everyone he interacts with, and that's yeah. and I think that's the thing. I think he is a naturally kind of magnetic person, and I don't think he even knows it, but he is. He he has a good heartedness and a charisma that attracts people to him, and I think that's you see that a lot in the show. You see that with Karen and with Matt, obviously, but also like with their clients, like the old woman, their one client <laughs> the yeah. life of this. That's we'll talk about that later. But their one client, the old woman. Trust him because he clearly actually cares and yeah. and he shares you know Matt's belief in the purity of the law and actually by the end of the series this is one good thing I thought came out of the last couple episodes is he becomes the soul of the team because yeah. Matt is morally compromised Karen is morally compromised although they never talk about it we'll get yeah. there too um, but Foggy really has this sense of good and evil and right and wrong and he really gives them all their heart. Like, you sense that if Matt didn't have Foggy in his life, I think he would have gone off the deep end a long time ago. Yeah, or he would have just gotten himself killed at some point. Yeah, and same with Karen at a certain point in this series. So, yeah, they did a really good job with Foggy. And as you say, tough character to do. I mean, the standout episode with him, obviously, is episode 10. It's, It's the one... Where he finds out Matt is Daredevil. Yeah. And it's the Nelson versus Murdoch episode. And it's got all the flashbacks to them wanting to be avocados. I love, like, those flashbacks to them in college are so good. Yes. Like, it is unbelievable how good those are. Yeah. And, you know, I thought they... God, I've got a lot of problems with the end, but we'll get there eventually. I, I thought they let everyone being mad at each other stew too long at the end. Sure, but I also yeah. liked that it wasn't as simple as that one episode, they hug it out at the end. Yeah. Like... There was something that stung there, and I thought they should have resolved that before the finale, but um, still, like, within episode 10, I think that episode works because it doesn't end at a point of easy absolution. Yeah, because, like, it really makes you feel just how hard that would hurt, like, in real, yeah. like, like the sort of the realistic side of the secret identity thing, that's like, like, I've, I've just never seen it played that way, very, like... You are absolutely fucking right, Foggy. Like, what Matt has done in his relationship with you is really fucked up. And I understand why Matt did that. But it's like, it is a really interesting tension in that episode, in in their relationship. Yeah. It's like, I've never seen the secret identity thing played quite like that before. They did a really good job with it, um, with that character at least. So, Matt and Foggy, great. And, And there you go, by the way, are two actors I've never heard of. Who they pulled out of, you know, um, obscurity basically, and Eldon Henson and Charlie Cox are great, and I look yeah. forward to seeing other stuff they do. In fact, because they're so good here. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, then we have Karen Page, obviously the third main character, played by Deborah Ann Wall, who I've known from stuff before, um, but mostly she's been on True Blood. Yeah. And I don't want to watch True Blood, even even though I like Deborah Ann Wall. So I'm glad she's on a show I can watch. Yeah. <laughs> so and she's great. She she's, is. Yeah, she's really good. I think Karen of these three is the most problematic as written, I think especially at the end. 
I think they lose the thread on this character 100%, but I think Deborah Ann Wall is consistently very good at playing this woman who clearly has some darkness in her, in her past, but wants to be good and, and has, like, I think that's where she and Foggy so clearly meet, is she has this sense of inherent goodness and, and I think, optimism about people. Yeah. And yet she also kind of has this cynical side and that back and forth fighting it and how Foggy brings that optimism out in her and lets her feel... I think how she wants to feel that's the interesting character dynamic there yeah. and with Matt I think it's why it's kind of a brotherly sisterly thing there is that I think they both have similar you know flaws and failings yeah. that they they have an inherent understanding of each other which is why we'll talk about this later well I don't know um, I, I don't should, should she have found out this season I don't know. Like I, I think she should have I think the way and it's, part of it is just those last three episodes are just three hours of wheel spinning but I think there's a lot of stuff about Karen that doesn't kind of rest at the end of the season. They, sure, put a, yeah. they throw a lot of arcs out there, and none of them come back. Uh, you know, she... And I'm skipping ahead a little bit. We'll get to all the stuff at the end. But, you know, she kills Fisk's best friend. Yeah. And, Wesley. you know, she has this understanding with Matt, and yet she's the one on the team who isn't led into that decision, even though, really, her not knowing probably would hurt her in the long run in terms of security issues. Mm -hmm. So, and then also I think her agency kind of gets taken away when, spoiler, Ben dies. We'll get there too. So, there's a lot of stuff on that character that doesn't work. But up until that point, I like her relationship with Ben also, who we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. And that kind of side of things is interesting. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of good stuff there. Um, I think she becomes, maybe they give her too many weepy scenes at the end. Sure, Like it's a little yeah. one note. But, yeah, consistently I think she's a nice... Very vibrant presence, and I think what does matter most throughout all of this is how all these characters play off one another. And yeah. if any one of these three were miscast, I think all of them would be weaker characters because you don't have this Matt Murdock without that Karen and that Foggy, and you know, vice versa on all of that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I basically agree with everything you said. Like, yeah, there's yeah. definitely like her character is one that's just like it just feels like they didn't know where to place her in the ending. You know. It's like, and I don't necessarily think that she should have, like, it all depends on, like, how they play it in, like, whatever season two is going to be. Yeah, well, and we'll talk about that because I've spent basically the last week mulling over my reaction to the last couple episodes, and I will get there when we get there, but it mostly comes down to, I thought there were a lot of chickens that didn't come home to roost on the character level, on the plot level, and something had to resolve with Karen at the end, because I think everyone else comes to some kind of closure point she doesn't yeah. and that's that's you know if if she didn't find out then she at least had to tell someone about the murder or something about her dark past had to come out or she had to have more of a catharsis about Ben or she had to play a more active role in how they got Kingpin something had to happen there it didn't but there's a general messiness to that that we'll talk about later yeah. in terms of other characters I your man Ben Ben Urich you like Ben yeah they fucking those motherfuckers they fucking they fucking killed him Rather worthlessly, I thought, but yeah, it's just like I like. I really, really liked Ben Eric. Like he, I thought because he, he's he's a character from the comics who's also in Spider Man stuff. So I actually know a bit more about him than I do a lot of the other characters on the show. But there's also like it's not like he is a super notable character necessarily because he's in the comics. He's just kind of a journalist for the Daily Bugle and stuff. But yeah, like I just thought he brought a really interesting presence to the show that like had a very different dynamic than the other characters. I really liked that sort of like really small undertone of the, th the thematic element of the show of that you know 
that sort of like hard cutting old school style of journalism getting consumed by modern like internet bullshit which is just like very cathartic to like have like this character just like does not stand like will not stand for that oh well we're just like reporting whatever seems kind of nice and it's just like we're reporting kind of nonsense 24 hours a day just to like have like to generate interest and not doing anything actually constructive with our reporting it's like I, so I really love that aspect of the character it's like this motherfucker is killing him off means that they cannot then use him in any Spider-Man stuff this is like they should have fucking left him alive so they could use him for Spider-Man stuff well, that would to, have been awesome. To be fair, when they wrote and produced all this, there was no yeah. indication Marvel would ever get Spider-Man. I know, like, so. like I'm, yeah. I'm more just like I'm not mad like at them, like really. I'm just yeah. like I'm mad at the universe that I'm, that didn't work out. I'm know. mad at them for other reasons, but with this character, but because yeah. I just don't think it serves any purpose at the end narratively. But I mean, but and here's the thing with Ben. So I think, uh, and this is this. I'm spoiling my thesis, but when I talk about my problems with the ending, a lot of it is I think the show maybe at the end didn't quite understand its own themes. And I do think the main driving point of this show to me is it is a show about hope and how much we have hope or lack hope or how much faith we place in having a hope. And we have, you know, Matt, who is very conflicted if he can put his hope in the legal system or if he has to be hopeless and take it on as Daredevil. And you have Wilson Fisk, who has has hope for Hell's Kitchen, but only in the sense of tearing it down and rebuilding it. Yeah. And you have, which, you know, is a mirror to Daredevil, because is Daredevil doing anything different is one of the questions. Mm -hmm. And you have Karen, who wants to hope, but doesn't know how. And you have Foggy, who is always going to trust in that, no matter what. And I think that's why Ben is such an interesting character, is he's also really torn. He's a guy who has decided he doesn't want to hope anymore, he doesn't want to do any of this. And coming into contact with Karen, who is this person who is on that line and doesn't know where she wants to be, that's a great character relationship. Yeah. And even though you know Ben only occasionally comes into contact with Daredevil or Fisk or any of the other main characters, he feels so central to the show in a way I think the crusading journalist archetype usually doesn't. Yeah. Because he is such a clear thematic extension of what this show is about. Yeah. And I really like that side of it. Mm -hmm. And his, his gradual awakening to that... Up until the point where he's willing to put everything on the line to try to, you know, trust in the hope that people will believe what Fisk is doing. Yeah. You know, all of that is really well done. And, and Von D. Curtis Hall, who is a you know veteran character actor, I've seen him in a million places, I feel mm -hmm. like. And he really, really chews into that here. He's really yeah. good. So Yeah. But we'll just never get... We'll never get him getting, like, transferred to the Daily Bugle. I know. And, like, Peter Parker coming in as, like, the web designer or something for the Daily Bugle. Like, he's an <laughs> web designer. Man, and, like, trying to help him figure out how to, like, make the internet work. Like, it's just, like, I had all these fantasies in my head about, like, what you could have done with that character in a sort of, like, wider context of the Marvel Universe. And it's like, god damn it. Fucking, and again. Fucking killed him. I've got, I've got words on that. But I need to save it for my, my big... Thing at the end, where whatever. I put this together. So, but let's keep talking about the good stuff. Okay. Because here's the guy we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. Vincent D'Onofrio, Wilson Fisk, the kingpin go himself. Like I don't even know where to start. So you go. He's so okay. This is because this is something that like I have been thinking about since I watched the show. Is that Stephen Moffat needs to sit down and fucking watch Daredevil and look at the kingpin because this is exactly the character, like the kind of villain I have been waiting for. For so long, where it is the psychopathic, megalomaniacal crime lord guy, like what Moriarty is or should be in like the Sherlock show, or kind of like what, more or less, kind of like what the Master is in Doctor Who, 
like that kind of very broad villain archetype sort of done in a modern style but keeping the sort of the things that made those characters work when they were very popular back when like these comics were really popular you know like he's not this raving fucking lunatic that's always just like saying stupid jokes and like laughing and that shit it's like no he feels like a real human being he is a fucking psychopath you know and he has like the most severe anger issues you could probably possibly have but like (laughs) you know when I think about Moriarty in the Sherlock show I can't imagine him waking up in the morning and getting dressed and going out and being in like a coffee shop you know like that character cannot exist outside of the context of like the plot of the episode whereas like Wilson Fisk like I can imagine that dude living his fucking life completely outside of the context of a plot in an episode of Daredevil like he just feels like a fully realized dynamic human being to me that is a villain and he's really monstrous in a lot of ways but he's also very sympathetic and that you can see that like what he is trying to do and totally understand that he's going about it completely the wrong way but you also understand why he's going about it the wrong way you understand that he is a really broken kind of fractured person who's also like really weirdly awkward and kind of lonely and doesn't know how to like interact with people but he has all this power to himself because he also has this really magnetic charisma you know absolutely and i think they do something so kind of playful and interesting to me here where I think they start with Wilson Fisk very broad where he's got yeah. the weird vocal inflections and he's you know slamming people's heads off in car doors yeah. and he's he's fucking you know a maniac and then they go further in and further in and further in and they flesh him out and flesh him out and get more specific and more specific until you real until all of that comes to bear you know he's not the fascinating character you speak of right off the bat but they, you know, they just peel back the layers, yeah. and it works so well. Um, you know, and it's kind of the opposite arc that Matt has, where Matt becomes the icon in episode thirteen. He, he yeah. puts on the suit, and that's the end point of his story. He becomes the archetype fully at the end, where I think Wilson Fisk starts as the archetype and becomes very human. Yeah, and then, and I do think it's a weird structuring thing to the season where he has to kind of go back to that at the end. But overall, I think this, 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 just the arc they do with him is, is so good. And to me, it, it, it comes to bear most heavily in episode 8, which is his flashback episode. It's yeah. called Shadows in the Glass. Very, uh, I like that title. because yeah. All the titles, actually, for these episodes are yeah, really good. Really good yeah. um, just, just, it's a small thing, but it's something I like it when a show does that. Yeah. Um, and that's the one with his flashbacks to his dad. And that's another one where the flashbacks started and I thought, it was a little broad. His, you know, his dad beats him and all that shit. Yeah. But... Fucking hell, they yeah. went for it with him killing his dad with the hammer and really seeing that this is a boy who grew to the age of eight or whatever and was emotionally stunted at that moment and just never grew up. Yeah. And you're watching a child basically with an adult's mind and he's very smart and he's very driven, but he has this, you know, emotionally he is so unstable. Yeah. And I like how all the other characters, especially um, his girl who, Vanessa, I yeah. hear him say that name so many times. Um, Vanessa becomes his Lady Macbeth because I think she sees the raw potential in him, you know? Yeah, she sees, like, how much power that he can get and so, like, yeah. by proxy that she could get. And because I think there's a genuine attraction there. Yeah, there's And that's, yeah. that is the most interesting thing about all of this is when it starts out and it's just the bad guy dating the hot girl and lying to her, I was like, I've seen this in a million movies, do I need to see this? 
And then it's, no, he tells her right off the bat who yeah. he is. Yeah. And once she knows she doesn't run away, she is fully on board. Yeah. And, and, that, then, and then it's also like when you then see the flashback and it's like you then know it's like, his fucking mom, like, was like cut up the corpse and yeah. like helped him hide it, you know? Like, this dude's relationship with women has been fucked up. His, like, it, it puts his relationship with this lady and, like, who this lady is, I think, in, like, a really different context. It's very Oedipal. Yeah, it's... when you realize, like, that his mom was super fucked up in, like, kind of a similar way. And that, like, when you look at the, both his mom and Vanessa on the outside, they just seem like very normal people. But it's, like, when you, like, spin more... And there's no, like, single turning point, you know? There's no, like, moment where, like, the mask comes off and they're, like, crazy villains. It's, like, it's a slow realization. And then, like, them getting put into situate, like, sort of more intense situations that you realize, like, these are not normal fucking ladies. Like, they are super fucked up. And he is, too. And he needs a mother as much as he needs a lover. And he gets them both in Vanessa. But Vanessa also clearly has something she needs that he fulfills. And it's a genuine romance... And it is probably the most interesting villain woman, like for male villain woman. Yeah. This is a very, you know, male centric genre. Um, and, you know, like, you know, villain and girlfriend relationships since Joker and Harley Quinn to me. Yeah. And how they do this. It's, and obviously the Joker does not love Harley Quinn. Yeah. But, and that's why that one's interesting. Here, though, it's in season two, that's going to be a thing. That's, you know, they are committed to each other, but the, the, the source of that commitment is fascinating. Yeah. Like, it's, and I think it's just amazing that they decided that, like, the main love story of the whole season yes. is fun, is the villain, is Fisk. Wilson Fisk in, in Vanessa. And it's like, you know, you have, like, a little bit of romancy kind of stuff with the Rosario Dawson character and Matt. And it's like, there's like, kind of hints with, like, Foggy and Karen. It's like, no, it's like full in. I mean, that's your first introduction to Wilson Fisk is yes. him meeting Vanessa. Like, when you meet the character is when that love story begins. Like, that's his whole arc, which is... Like, it's also something that, as an adaptation of, I think, what is one of the great sort of villains from the comics that both Daredevil and Spider-Man share. Like, I think it's a really fascinating choice, because I know that Vanessa Fisk is a character from the comics, but, like, I, she was never that significant to me. Like, it was never, like, a big thing about the character. That is both, like, Vincent D'Onofrio's very humanistic portrayal of him, like, especially as you get to see more and more, kind of understand who he is, combined with that love story... It's like both of those are very kind of bold adaptation choices with that character that is a very larger than life kind of character that would be very easy to do in a very comical fashion. And it's like they they just do such an interesting job adapting him that it feels like a natural extension of that character I love from the comics. But like a, a, a different version of him that's very interesting to see and not just a carbon copy of like who he is of the comics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this show so consistently takes fairly broad, familiar superhero archetypes and does something interesting with them. So, you know, the main split between Fisk and Daredevil is they both want to save the city and they have differing ideas on how to do that. You've seen that before. That's totally run-of-the-mill. That's familiar. The way it plays out, though, feels really, I think, important and interesting and, and crucial to the, you know, tapestry of this series in that I think Fisk really does love his city. I think he really does think he's he wants to do the right thing. And I also think if he and Matt could sit in a room and talk and he wasn't quite as... had that many screws loose, yeah. he could probably be a force for good. Mm-hmm. He's just got yeah. too many things broken and he's got too many, frankly, enablers around him. Yeah, and he's got a really big anger problem. A really big anger problem, that's the big one, that, you know, he is destined to just wallow in that. Yeah. Um, 
but I like that. It's it's you know it's it's a very broad idea, but it is done very very well. Yeah. And I also think like with that idea that they make the idea that Matt being Daredevil is not necessarily the right choice a more much more compelling argument than that kind of argument is usually made in this stuff. And especially it's it's one of the interesting things about Daredevil as a character is that he is a lawyer and he's also a vigilante, right. which is like you know obviously something that is very at odds in terms of a personal identity that's like it makes you really question it's like well like Matt like what if you kind of like went more in on the law side and tried to approach it that from that way it's like because obviously he also has like Matt also has some big fucking anger and like guilt issues with like this like it's really tied in the thing with his Catholic identity that that really comes out when he's beating the shit out of people as Daredevil it's like because he never goes easy on people no yeah he beats the fucking shit out of people like it's a very violent show it's a, it's something that I do feel like the show makes a very compelling argument that it's like you do feel like that if Matt didn't do the Daredevil stuff and really tr- like worked with Foggy to find ways to help out in a like ab- above the board legal sense it's like there are things that there are, there are good things that he could be doing that he's missing out on because he's so fixated on the Daredevil thing and he's not trying to do it the harder way but the writer way you know yeah yeah, it's, it's so interesting and just to talk about D'Onofrio's performance yeah there's so many good things to it he's got the physicality down pat when they go in for the fights I love how they portray him yeah, fighting he's, he's just, just this boulder yeah like he's just this unstoppable tank like especially the fucking scene where he just like the first scene where you really see him let it off and like he kills the Russian guy it's like that's where you just get the sense that he is this just unstoppable, like, mass of humanity, you know? And he's just, like, this just fucking writhing rage, and he smashes the guy's head in with the car door over and over and over again until his fucking head comes off. It's like, that, yeah. that is who the Kingpin is. And it's like, this is also in the, king, like, the Kingpin in the comics, they exaggerate how big he is, obviously, because you can, it's a comic book. And there's always that moment when, like, a new character is going up against the Kingpin that's fantastic, where they think that he's just, like, this big fat guy, and they realize it's like, that's, he's not fat, dude. That is pure fucking muscle. Like, he is this titan of a man. Like, he is not this, like, fat guy. He is just going to fucking, like, in the, there's an issue in Ultimate Spider-Man where the Kingpin literally just, like, cracks a dude's skull with his bare hands. And it's like, yeah. that's the guy that Kingpin is. And when he lets off, like, he just fucking goes crazy. And they totally, they... Nailed that part of the character. And then the, the biggest thing for me, though, is the voice. Because yeah. the way he... His vocal inflections and the way he delivers lines, he is always right right up against the line of parody. Yeah. And that's what makes it great, is he is... It's, it's one step away from being a joke. But it doesn't go into the joke territory, and because of that, you can kind of laugh at it and be terrified of it. Yeah. You know? That he is because he is kind of an amusing guy because there is like it's definitely a conscious part of his character that he does it. It's like he is just super awkward. Like he yeah. just doesn't know how to communicate with people because he's kind of a psychopath. And so it's like there is that part of like some of the ways that he's awkward are very funny, but then it also makes it very scary because you know that like him being awkward is part of what f- like feeds into his anger stuff. You know? Yeah, totally. All right. So what I want to do now. Um, we'll get back to I want to talk about maybe favorite episodes and other character moments at the end but I do want to talk about the end of the series because I don't want that to be the note we end on or sure, yeah. because I, and I should say I'm going to have a bit of a rant here I, overall I'm really positive on this I think it's a really good show I'm excited for season 2 and you know I think they did a really great job here I think they bungled the ending personally I think 
episode 8, 9, and 10 is the peak of the series to me. That's mm-hmm. the, the Wilson Fisk episode with his flashbacks. Speak of the Devil, which is where you know, Daredevil is tortured over whether or not he should kill Fisk. And then 10 is Nelson versus Murdoch. And those 10 episodes, I was so impressed when we got through episode 10. Because those 10 feel so perfectly arced. Where you have... You know, overall the arc is on the villain side They are being overwhelmed by Kingpin And yeah. everyone is being pushed towards extremes And having to reevaluate their lives because of that And the Kingpin himself is pushing himself towards extremes Yeah, And I just think those ten are really, really good And I think if anything the last couple episodes are a victim of expectation Because they do sure, so yeah. well in those first ten I really did think 11, 12, and 13 Everything just kind of fell apart I think 11 and 12 are decent episodes on their own And then I don't like the finale at all but what happens is I think they 11 and 12 kind of spin wheels And throw even more story stuff out Without really starting to pull things in And then they leave everything to the finale And of course the big issue you could point towards Is that everything happens way too easily in the finale yeah. They find their one magical witness Who gives them everything Even though that's fucking ridiculous And that's not how the law works And yeah. even on a show that obviously is in a heightened reality That's stupid and makes no sense and just feels way too easy for what these characters have gone through. And then even after that, Matt going after Kingpin is... He punches two dudes. He punches the Kingpin. We're done. I mean, it's 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 absurdly oversimplified, I think. And that's the easy thing you can say. But I think the bigger ramification of that for me... Because that, that on its own, that's something TV shows do. It yeah. happens. But what it does is I think it betrays a lot of what they were building up towards really interestingly early on. So... Because they have their one magical witness Who is the, the cop, I forget his name uh, Hoffman, Detective Hoffman yeah. That means that everything Daredevil, Matt, and Foggy uh, Daredevil and Matt are the same person yeah. Daredevil, Karen, and Foggy do yeah. In episodes 1 through 12 Is useless, it doesn't matter Like all the stuff Karen does with Ben That doesn't come to bear on how they bring down the Kingpin mm-hmm. All the stuff Foggy and Matt do together to figure out And then Karen all do together yeah. on the legal side Really doesn't come to bear Because it all comes down to Hoffman And that is completely motivated by an action Fisk takes in what I should say is a good scene Where he fucking kills that dude By shoving him down an elevator shaft Yeah, You hurt Vanessa Yeah, That is great, that's, that's good Even though it really I think on a plot level is problematic Because it creates a giant deus ex machina for them Sure yeah And then it rolls into stuff like Okay Ben gets wasted as a character Wasted in the sense that he's killed But also wasted in the sense that we have this arc Where he is choosing whether or not he's going to Reveal what he knows How much he wants to be a journalist How much he trusts technology yeah. And then finally he's going to reveal all that stuff on his computer And Fisk kills him And that's it, Ben has no importance to the finale Other than Karen cries And we have that funeral scene which is nice But it really doesn't matter yeah. And I thought you could have fixed most of my problems with these If the end of episode 12 is He does publish his story That's what gets the ball rolling And then everything Ben and Karen did would matter And then Ben gets killed in retribution That would make sense and or, that would, or Ben starts working for the Daily Bugle And meets Peter Parker sure. And all my fantasies are fulfilled I'm just saying if they want to kill him That's a way you can do it where it doesn't feel like a waste to me sure, yeah. Because as it stands Ben on a plot level does not matter to this series yeah, I guess. Like, I, I guess I don't necessarily see it that, like, like it needs to be, like, everything that they, they do needs to cumulatively add up to, like, the single punch kind of thing. That's, like, the fact that they're striving for it still matters to me. It matters in some... And you know what? If he didn't die, it would if, you know, he decided to go on vacation at the end yeah. and all that didn't matter, that would be a different thing. But because it is a death and it is the thing that brings us into the finale and kicks the finale off... 
I just feel that there should be some weight with that. And it's it doesn't even manifest itself in the thing of they're going to be more motivated now because the answer just literally falls into their lap. Like, Daredevil is in the police station one day, hears about Hoffman, and, oh, there we go, solve the case. Yeah. None of that really matters. And, and I think they really bungled the Karen stuff where... Okay, Karen is a really interesting character, and she's she's doing all this stuff. And at the end of episode eleven, which I think is a good episode, and actually the ending is great, it's yeah. just never followed up on. Is Karen is kidnapped, and she's with Wesley, who I should say that actor he's playing a very stereotypical character. I thought he did a good job. He does a really good. I love I his love relationship with, yeah. with Kingpin. Like, it's great. Yeah, there's a really weird bromance there. That yeah. yeah. And I was so, really sad when he was killed. Cause was like, I know. Oh, no, Wesley, you're so But great. it's a really interesting scene because yeah. we've been hinting at this darkness in Karen and we've had all this discussions of whether or not it's right to kill people and then Karen shoots Wesley. And you understand totally why yeah. she does it even as you also understand why she probably shouldn't have. Yeah. And that's what makes it a good scene. And it's also fantastic because I was so worried when they did that. It's like, no, fuck, they're going to just make Karen the damsel in distress. Right. Which is what, like, again, like my experience with Daredevil comics, it happens just over and over and over again. And they like, she kind of is in, like, the first, her first character arc, but, like, not in a big way that felt like a problem. And I was like, oh, no, if they do that again, yeah. it's just going to feel really tedious. Right. And so they don't do that at all, and she kills Wesley. Yeah. And that's a huge moment. And then I think the fallout from that hurts in a couple different ways, where Karen never... I mean, she is obviously torn up by it, but yeah. that's mostly just in her performance. It really doesn't come to bear on the story, because she never... I really thought there should have been a scene where she says what happened to Foggy or Matt. Just to yeah. tie one of those relationships, to, if not both of them. I think you could have done it that way, too. But that had to come out in some way because that's too big a part of her arc to go unresolved this season. And I don't even think her telling it needs to be resolution. You can deal with that guilt later. But I just thought that needed to come out and be voiced because it's too big to just leave on the table like that. And then Wesley dying, I don't think does has enough of an effect on Fisk, either. I think there's some in that he kind of goes off the rails in 12 and 13 but I don't think they did enough with that and then also you could have done like if Karen had taken Wesley's phone at the end of episode 11 that would have been a piece of evidence that they could have got that would have made the Hoffman stuff not feel as lucky as it Hmm. does and instead it becomes something for Fisk but that's an unresolved thing where the killing in a lot of ways does nothing for our heroes other than make Deborah Ann Wall really weepy for two more episodes Yeah. so that's one where I just thought they threw out this big thing near the end and that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's kind of tricky because it's obviously like they're just intending to leave that as a thread to develop in season two. So it's like, I because I, I agree with you, like, I'm, it's not as big of a problem for me as it is for you, but I definitely think it is something that makes, because I do think, like, specifically the last episode just kind of feels like it falls flat. Like, it just doesn't, which is something I was kind of expecting, like, that just feels like it's kind of par for the course a lot of the time when, like, the buildup is so fantastic that's like it's so hard to get the payoff 100% right so i wasn't super frustrated by the fact that it didn't nail the landing but yeah I, i'm i'm curious to see like how cuz it feel it does feel like a really weird thing specifically at the end i felt like karen needs to tell like like someone somehow like it needs to get like vocalized in some way even if it's not necessarily that even foggy and matt find out right but yeah, it, it is a weird thing that I'm curious how they're going to develop it. Yeah, I and, and the thing is, you know, 
I, I think it's weird that they left so much for season two because unless they knew something we didn't, the plan, and they have, they've announced the season two, they're making it, but Marvel's plan was just that they were going to do these four series and then do the Defenders, and then maybe they'd do sequels later. Uh, and it just happened that Daredevil was really acclaimed and a smash hit, and so they're going to do that second season before the Defenders. But this would have been really frustrating if we just didn't get a second season for like four years. Yeah. That would have been kind of maddening. I, I care less, but I still, I'm very much of the... Train of thought: A season should be a season should be yeah, like tied I, together, I be... agree with you, but like, it's not that big a deal to me. Like, and I'm just, yeah. I, I get that, and I'm just explaining, you know, yeah, my own issues with this because I, I totally like my favorite series of you know like American TV series recently are stuff like you know The Wire and Breaking Bad, and on a very different level, something like Mad Men, which isn't as plot driven, but these are all shows that very much you know set up their themes and set up their plots, and at the end, it all comes home. In some way, you can leave things, you know, as launching pads for future seasons, but you do feel like you get that experience. And I thought a lot of that just was kind of messy at the end here. Uh, you know, messy is the main word I'd use to describe a lot of this. And not necessarily bad. I like 11 and 12 as episodes in a lot of ways, and there's some good stuff. Like, okay, 12 is the one where Matt dismantles Madame Gao's drug operation. Yeah. Phenomenal set of scenes. Yeah. That's a lot of good stuff there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like Madame Gao as a character a whole lot. Yeah. Even that, though, that pretty great. even though I think there was too much going back and forth on what are Fisk's like, you know, like co-conspirators? How do they view Fisk? Why? Yeah. Why are they? Why are they manipulating him this much if they support him? And then I also thought in eleven, twelve, and thirteen, they needed to tell a little more specifics of what the fuck Fisk's plan was because that's right, just yeah. you're kind of left to assume he's going to do new buildings, but that's not nefarious enough, frankly. And it's not except for like part of it is that like because it's the whole thing with like the old uh, Mexican lady that's like they're pushing people out of their homes to like like break down the homes and like build up newer like bigger buildings. So it's like they're kicking people out, but there's like have no idea like what's going to happen to those people. Very true, and I and I like all the stuff they do with the Mexican lady. Yeah, Uh, that's a great kickoff point for episodes eight, nine, and ten. In fact, yeah, Um, you get all that. But here's my bigger problem, I guess, with all that is there's no real sense of urgency to the ending. It's if we let Kingpin win, he will eventually tear down some buildings and rebuild them and displace some people. And that's fine, but it's like, they, there's a lot of urgency that I'm not quite sure where it's coming from. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. It's, it's just part of the thing that, like, the overall impact of that last episode, it just, it definitely feels like, like, there, it's it's trying to pay off on, in, on some sort of, like, ticking time bomb scenario that's not quite there because, like, the yeah. plan is so... Far in the future and... Yeah, like, it is, yeah. It's it is so broad that there's not like one thing the kingpin's about to do that we absolutely have to stop him, but it, it feels like they're trying to like pay off on that. Yeah, yeah, and and I think also I I'm not sure this season I would have actually been much more satisfied with something where one and ten are one through ten are what they are, and then maybe they did not a full thirteen episode season, but just did one or two more after that where we get to some resolution point where maybe they expose Fisk or something, but it's not all tied together. Mm-hmm. And maybe you tie the character stuff together and you have more time for that rather than being busy with all the plot mechanics. But we leave it, Fisk is out there in the wind and, and this stuff is still, you know, gestating because they've put so much out there that you just, you couldn't, there, there couldn't be a good version of this yeah. finale, frankly, because they left way too much to resolve in that one hour. And I don't know if they needed to. They, especially if they knew they were getting a second season, and uh, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. You could let Fisk still be the villain, and then we come back for season two, and maybe you know Matt has fully become Daredevil, and some things have shifted, but the overall battle is still going on. I think that could have worked. 
Yeah, but although on the other hand, like I am interested in the idea of them getting a different villain for season two. Sure. Like, like maybe Wilson Fisk is still like a character in the background, or maybe you save him for like being another character in some other like Marvel stuff. But yeah, like I, because on it, it all depends on like what they do with season two. That it's like if they're not able to come up with another interesting villain, it would feel like kind of a waste to get rid of the Kingpin here. But then on the other hand, it's like you do want to have something new and like have season two like be able to have its own identity and not just feel like season one continued you know i totally get that um but i guess my other thing is i didn't read the finale as we're done with the kingpin at all i assume episode one he's out of prison i mean the way they i don't all of i that, don't assume that at all like, he, everyone in the whole fucking world is in his pocket i thought the stuff with the fbi agents at the end was stupid and he's yeah, just that he's just like yeah automatically can get well, who's to say why would his prison guard not be in his pocket too i mean I I don't feel like because honestly if that really is it they brought down his entire legendary operation that is so important and so secretive that a dude shoved his eye through a fucking spike in a wall yeah. to make sure he didn't say his name if that is the case and we brought it down in 45 minutes and that's it we're done I uh, that's not interesting to me I mean, but that's what I was kind of saying with, like, there's no... I just don't feel like there is a way to resolve that. Yeah. And, like, for it to feel clean. Like, there's no way to... Like, with how much it was built up. And it's like, that's, like, kind of my feelings on the show. Is that, like, I don't necessarily care that much that they bungled the ending. Because I was kind of expecting them to. Like, it just feels like that's the way these things go. It's like, it's just the journey to that ending that's a lot more important than, like, that ending conflict in and of itself. You know? And I, I feel like it would be smarter for them to try to move on to a different villain because it's like i just don't feel like there's a lot like i really love their version of the kingpin but i feel like if he has made the primary antagonist again like i don't know what quite you do with him and i do agree that it's like it's not entirely believable that just like throwing him in prison and it's all said and done and i do feel like they'll do something else with the character in some way but I want I definitely want them to move in a different primary antagonist for a season two. I agree with that completely. I'm just saying my read on the finale is we're doing this because it's the finale, but we're not done with this guy. Yeah, I don't think they're done with him, but I don't think like season two episode one is like the Kingpin getting out, like Okay, but he's gonna be in prison and he's gonna be orchestrating things from behind the scenes. I can guarantee that, because Vanessa's still in the wind. That's gonna come back to yeah. back home at some point. So who knows? Um yeah, there are plenty of directions to go. And my other two quick things about the finale. Okay. I thought it was really poorly directed. I thought Stephen DeKnight is a really good writer. He did a great job with with this season as showrunner. Um, but he directed the finale. He's not a director. And that episode was the only one that kind of betrayed that sense of scale thing I talked about earlier. Yeah. Like, the whole thing at the end of the Kingpin, I thought that was one of the lamer fights they ever did. Like, I think the choreography for the Kingpin is still good where he is this raging bull. Yeah. But... It's too easy for Matt, and just it all looks. They're just in an alleyway for the final scene, and it's not even a particularly interesting alleyway. It was the only episode where I watched it and said, "All right, this is a TV show on Netflix." Yeah, yeah it was also just like the whole scene with like him and like the police convoy and stuff, and like the, the FBI agents getting. There's something that like that felt kind of cheap about that scene, both narratively and I feel like the way it was presented. Like it just didn't like. I don't know. Like, I feel like there should have been a lot more police, like, men and police guards, like, involved in that convoy and not, like, two cars and, like, a big truck and, like, two guys in the back trying to yeah. guard, like, this guy who's, like, if he's, like, you have all, like, the dirt on this guy, you know how fucking dangerous he is. 
Like, you should be taking that way more seriously. And just, too many things came too easily. Like, you know, so we finally get the Daredevil costume itself at the end of episode 13. Yeah. And I thought the moment where, you know, he goes to the the designer, whatever his name is, uh, Potter, I guess. Yeah. yeah I'm seeing it here. Um, he gets that, so I think that's a good scene. I like the suit itself. I like how he fights in it. But I thought it was another thing where they were clearly building to this and then it didn't mean a whole lot because the whole point is, you know, episode nine, he gets torn to shreds and realizes, all right, I can't keep going out in this little black pajama suit. Yeah. Which I, I fucking love the Dread Pirate Daredevil. We'll talk yeah. about it more in a minute. But I still, you know, obviously it's ridiculous for him to be doing that. Yeah. And so he needs to get a better suit so he's more protected. But then the actual protective qualities of the suit don't play into the final yeah, battle. that's true. Yeah. That's weird. Like, he should have gotten shot or something and had a bullet bounce off. Or Kingpin should have been using a knife or something. Like, something that would make that suit really matter in the last scene. Like, yeah. I think they even could have brought it in earlier in the finale. Like, they could have solved a lot of issues if... Okay, we have Dave's ex-Hoffman. Yeah. But maybe Hoffman is really tough to get to. And Daredevil can't do it without his new suit. Because there's so many people guarding him and there's guns and all that. Sure, yeah. You could do that, and then into the Kingpin and have that be tough, too. There were just a lot of things where... Or he should have impaled Kingpin on his Daredevil horns. <laughs> sure. His tiny little Daredevil horns. All right. So anyway, that's my problems with the ending. I just thought it was very, very narratively messy at the end. And I thought, just by you know the basics of dramatic construction, I thought it really fell flat. And the finale in particular was the disappointment, but those last three, it just it lost steam. And it's something that happens sometimes. They peaked earlier in the season, and... That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it was just, uh, you know, it never it never got back up to that ep- le- yeah. episode nine level to me. Um, but that's okay. so that's just my opinion, and you know, yeah. It, like again, like I don't necessarily disagree with everything you're, or with anything you're saying, but I feel like for me, it didn't have like a huge negative impact because it's just like I don't know. I feel like there are so many TV shows that have like that exact issue with their arcing of like. Yep, like you're building up to something really amazing, but it's like it's basically impossible for you to be able to pull it off, and you're like trying to tie everything together at the end of the season. Like threads are just kind of like going, kind of yeah. going to go all over the place. But it's like there's still a you know, like like you said, like eleven and twelve are still really fun episodes to watch in and of themselves. It's how like they build up to that conclusion, and with like the conclusion being lackluster, that they seem yeah. not as good in hindsight. Yeah, that's true about TV, to be fair. I also think there's a lot of shows today that do that extraordinarily well. Sure. And, you know, it's... And I should say, this doesn't change my overall opinion on the show. I guess what I would say, though, is... Imagine how great this would be if they had nailed all of that at the end. Yeah, and I think they could sure. have in a couple ways. But it's just, it's like, you know, overall, I think this is a good show. But, you know, it's ultimately a B plus, A minus to me because of that, where it could have really been a, a strong A with everything that came before. So... Not that it matters. Let's talk about things that are good. I want to give props to... I love Daredevil's suit in this season. With the black mask and everything. I thought it is so visually striking and just so fun to watch. And I actually really did like that they kept it for 12 of the 13. Yeah, me too. Like, normally that would be something that I would really just get kind of annoyed at. That's like, just get him in the fucking costume at some point. But yeah, that outfit... Just works so well that it doesn't. Yeah, like it, it never matters to me that it's like, come on, just like let him be Daredevil. It's like, fuck it, he's Daredevil. Like, doesn't matter that much because I, you know, he needs the suit at some point. I actually think the black suit is more interesting visually. Yeah, but it, you know, I don't think it would have made sense for the character they wrote and Charlie Cox performed for him to put on the red mask at any point earlier than thirteen. Yeah, and 
And even then, I, I don't think their team fully earned it, but they got close enough. So it, it was still a good moment when he put it on. Yeah. Um, I, also, I also really like that they like that the episode where like stick comes in and like he gets the the his like billy kane weapon th- yeah because like, i guess they're basically tantas in this like i like that that like because that's a big part of his characters he has those like clubs and i was like why does he not have these and then i like how they like kind of make that a moment for like if you're someone who's a fan of the character he's like oh okay cool yeah. like that's how like he he's now gets those and just kind of incorporates them into his fights Absolutely. I thought that was a cool moment as well, of like slowly building him up as being like the Daredevil you know. Yeah, so the Dread Pirate Daredevil, as I've seen it on yeah. Facebook and or Twitter, and I love that. Uh, oh, the other thing I like about that is just, he's like, fuck it, I'm a blind dude, just pull this over my eyes. Yeah, exactly. I don't it's need the them. Best, it's the best mask. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, fuck it, like, I, it doesn't matter. I don't need to have some stupid, like, Robin Domino mask or something. Slightly weird, I thought no one ever asked him about that. But it's well, okay. Well, they didn't have time to ask him because he was punching him in the fucking teeth. Like, you know, he doesn't do that to Ben. That's that's the sure. only thing. It's okay. It's not a problem. I yeah. love that suit. What did you think of the actual final Daredevil suit? I like it. Like, it's something that it's like it's not in the show enough that it's hard to kind of comment on. Like, the one thing that I don't like about it is that it has Batman neck syndrome, and that like every Batman movie costume has had like that like, like really rigid cowl that like locks the actor's head and neck like perfectly in place and that like the daredevil shoot suit seems to have a bit of that just like his head and neck movements are really awkward i hope like i hope that they like redesign the suit slightly to like just get rid of that problem with the physicality of the actor but the design of the suit i think looks good i agree with you that like i hope that it's just something that like the direction in that episode wasn't that good so that it didn't look visually super interesting but it was something that like the black suit was far more striking for most of the season so i hope that like in season two they find a lot more interesting sort of visual ways to sort of display the suit yeah I, I thought i just thought the fight choreography and and photography was kind of flaccid in that last episode but i actually think the suit they built i agree with your thing about the batman neck syndrome yeah but i do think it's visually striking i think it works within the color palette they use yeah i think it's 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 not the red you know dominatrix thing ben affleck wore yeah, it's it, it looks really nice. It's got a variation of color. It's got the red and the black. It's you know got the little horns, but it's not ridiculous. Yeah, it. I guess it's just like you don't see like you just get so little of the suit that you don't yeah. see it in like a lot of different situations and settings. You know, right? That's like it's basically just in this kind of like dark blue alleyway. Right. But I'll, I'll just say I liked it. Like I I yeah. loved the black suit so much, and having not a lot of like pre existing nostalgia for the character. I that's the suit I knew. It's like that's cool. I like the black suit, but it didn't like when we got to the red suit. I wasn't suddenly disappointed, and I think yeah. that's maybe the most important thing. Because when you spend twelve episodes with one striking design, and then you're going to replace it, you got to bring the goods. I do think they brought the goods. Yeah, we'll see how it holds up over time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that he never put on the really lame like yellow and black outfit he originally had in the comics. <laughs> that just looks fucking awful. Well, you know, maybe it has to go to the cleaners next season, and there's yeah. an episode where he has to put on a yellow yeah. jumpsuit. Like, depending on how long, like how long running the Daredevil show is, eventually they'll have to make reference to that stupid yellow fucking thing at some point. They probably will. All right, um, favorite episodes. Mine is nine. Maybe we can talk about that in a minute. Any which other one is, ones? Which one is nine again? Nine is Speak of the Devil, and I'm going to do my. I'll yeah. do my spiel on this here. I I think bringing the Catholicism back in when they did, when he has this crisis of. Alright, the easiest way to take care of this is if I kill Fisk, then all of this goes away. Theoretically. Yeah. And, you know, his point of view is limited, and maybe we think, 
maybe it wouldn't go away, but who knows, you know. Um, but that's, we understand why he's at that point. And he has all these, I think, really interesting conversations with the pastor who, or the father. Who yeah. I, think that, I don't remember that actor's name, but he's really good in yeah. those scenes. And overall, and there's a lot of stuff going on in that episode. Um, but it, that's, where, that's also where Elena is killed, uh, the Mexican woman. Um, so a lot of things are going down. Everyone's kind of hopeless. And Matt is pushed to this point where he thinks the only thing he can do is damn his own soul. And I just think, you know, basically every character plays into this episode... But it all comes back to Matt and that like basic, you know, original sin kind of thing inside him, where he doesn't know if he is yeah. good or not, and how good he wants to be. And then I think it builds to this just phenomenal electric conclusion where he is fighting the ninja Nobu, yeah. and he gets the you know the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, and, he, and like, and he the Daredevil gets the shit kicked out of him a lot in the show, but like yeah. he he just gets like cut to ribbons by that right. by fucking the ninja. And then he tries to fight Kingpin and he fails miserably. Yeah. And everything goes wrong. It's like the Empire Strikes Back episode. Yeah. And if anything, it's like that's where I kind of wonder if you should have, you know, five episodes later gone to the conclusion because inevitably when he faces Kingpin at the end, it's kind of just a pale shadow of what this episode did. Yeah, it's true, yeah. Um, but I just think overall, like, this one, yeah, and it's totally, it's not standalone because it's part of the serialization, but on its own, it is a great hour. And yeah. I think it, it really has a lot of the same qualities that the best Marvel movies do where you just, everything about these characters clicks. Yeah, and I definitely agree with you that, like, this one particularly stands out because also it's, one of the episodes where they like they make the episode really focus in on that fight because it like cuts back to it because it's not the, the episode's not presented in chronological order so it's like you start with that him in the middle of this fight with the ninja and then like after the credits it cuts back to like kind of building up to how he gets to this point and that's like it's a really compelling hour because they like they can they so intricately constructed around that sort of like that set piece fight that you like are like how like what the f how does he the fuck does he get into this fucking fight with this ninja and how is he going to get out of it and it like sustains that tension really well but yeah. yeah but then also in that episode i'm pretty sure it's that episode where when he's talking to the pastor the pastor has that line i don't remember specifically what he says but he basically says something to the effects that it's like you know there's like the one thing that gets asses in the pews is the devil you know that's like that's the one thing that gets people to come to church and go to god is the devil and maybe that's why god created the devil in the first place and i felt like it was like i like the specific lines are really great because there's something that like it's really subtly builds up that like you realize oh that's the moment obviously where like matt as a character gets the idea of like that's what his costume is ultimately going to be and that's like that's the reason why he dresses up as the devil when it's like that's another one like the weird contradictions in his character like him being a lawyer and a vigilante is him being catholic and dressing up as the fucking devil seems like not something that a sane person would ever do but i like that that like that gives like this really interesting compelling argument for why like symbolically he is what he is you know yeah absolutely the the whole devil theme is is just really well done and you know when we talk religion on tv it's often not done very well yeah it's easy to be reductive with that stuff and they just they used that i think to its fullest potential for yeah. this show and, and and what that theme is but that's my favorite episode were there any other ones you wanted to talk about yeah i think like episode two i think really stood out to me because that was like i really liked episode one but episode two was when like oh, totally. i got the sense that's like the show like what they're doing with the show is something really special especially like 
that fucking last fight scene at the end of episode two. Like, and not just that, like, it's obviously really cool in terms of, like, the construction and the choreography of it being, like, one long take in this hallway and the camera movements and stuff. And all that stuff is fantastic. It's also, I think, the first fight scene that you get that you realize that, you know, Daredevil is a guy in the show. He is not a superhuman. So it's like, there's a lot of shots of he gets, like, punched or kicked in the face or he's leaning against the wall and, like, has to catch his breath. It brings that realism to it. But it's also that that whole episode feels like it really builds to that point that it's like, you really want Daredevil to save that kid. That it's like, it is so desperate in both, like, the actions of Daredevil and the way that Charlie Cox plays it, but also, like, just the narrative thrust of that episode is so powerful that when Daredevil finally overcomes, like, these, like, 15 guys in this hallway and, like, goes in and gets the kid and carries him and comes back out and, like, walks back through the hallway with, like, the doors are all busted and there's all these guys just, like, groaning on the ground. It's just, like, this really powerful, triumphant moment. Absolutely. And I'm looking at it right now. Episode 2 is also the one I was talking about earlier where he meets Claire. Yeah, yeah. And they have all their stuff in the building together. It's also the one with uh, Foggy and Karen's pub crawl. And it's also the one with the flashbacks. So Yeah, it's also, yeah the one where you that, see the Jack Murdoch yeah. flash, like the big one where he so, throws the fight. Yeah, the fight. no doubts there. That is easily the second best episode of yeah. the show. I mean, as you say, it builds to that. And I didn't, I totally get where you're coming from on seeing that last scene is triumphant. I thought this was kind of an episode also like Nine, very much about damnation, where sure, he is yeah. tortured... In, in an interesting way, not in the Ben Affleck Daredevil way. Yeah. Um, you know, and and he has this, you know, he is beat to hell at the start of this episode. And when he goes into the ring at the end there, he is as beaten as we've, almost as beaten as we ever see him on this show with the exception yeah. of the ninja stuff. Yeah. And, you know, he is not ready for this in a lot of senses, but he is going to go into that ring. And it has, you know, so much is playing into that. It's what happened with him and Claire. It's what happened with him and his father and that yeah. influence of Jack Murdoch. And it all comes to play there where on some level it is triumphant because in some sense he's doing what his dad could never do. He is going in there and, and kicking ass and taking names and, and doing the right thing um, and saving this kid. Yeah. But he's also, and, and you know, obviously there is the the imagery of children and him being a kid who was abandoned in some sense by his father. Yeah. And now he is saving this kid and walks back out. But also it's, you know, it, he is committing himself to this life of violence and what's the end point? You know, he, I, the, my favorite shot probably from the whole series is the, I guess it's all one long take, but that last fight where that first image though, where he comes around the corner and he's yeah. just bracing himself and we see him from behind and the room is green and it's that moment before he goes in. That is a great shot because it's him kind of bracing himself for this life he feels he has to lead. Yeah. And we're wondering if that's the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely like there's just a really potent sense of desperation like when you get to that end of that. It's like you just fucking need to save this kid at this point. Like, yeah, it, it's a really powerful episode. I also think is episode six the one where he's in the building, like the kind of the turning point with yep. him in Wilson Fisk? That's that called Condemned. Yeah, that it's... one's like maybe not quite as standout as an individual episode, but it's a really powerful sort of like turning point in the season. Oh, I think it's a standout as an individual it episode. Is, it is a standout episode, but like not as much, I think, as episode two or episode nine, but like its point yeah. in the middle of the season is like it just feels like it's a big, it's a big moment for the season. No, it's great. And, and, I think it's a really interesting one where it's all in that building for Matt and then every everyone else is doing stuff because at the end of episode 5 which I like 5 for instance is kind of a place mover episode but where it moves us to is the bombings at the end yeah, which is great and then everyone's reeling from that in 6 and 6 really works with all of that I thought that was one of those episodes which could have been tightened because a 
50 minute version of that instead of maybe 57 or whatever it is where it moves a little faster could have been even more tense but overall it's you know it's great and you get to the end and it's this relationship between matt and vladimir the russian dude and vladimir decides to sacrifice himself so matt can get out yeah it really builds it's it's a good one it shows that they can do that and i thought it was weird where the next episode basically does not acknowledge the events at all and it's the stick episode that was a weird transition sure, to yeah. me, but yeah, the stick episode kind of like I really like it on its own, but it stands out as like a weird anomaly yeah. in the season because it just feels like it's building up, like it's just building up things that aren't necessarily totally paid off. Like it definitely there are things that it moves forward forward, uh, like Matt as a character that are really important, but like yeah, there's like just stuff with stick as a character and like the like black sail or whatever the fuck like thing they're like looking yeah. for is like what the fuck is that thing. And he goes and he's like meets like stick meets the ninja dude at the end that I'm not like again I'm not really into that era of Daredevil the Frank Miller stuff so I don't know what half that shit is so I'm like what the like it's fine like as an episode of knowing that they're probably going to build up on it but like the fact that it's just its own weird thing it feels like it comes from a version of a Daredevil TV show that's like 24 episode long season or something absolutely because it's just one of those weird things where I thought this episode as it stands could have worked better somewhere else in the season like either earlier or later maybe but like where it comes then it's like they need to be dealing more with the fallout from all those bombings and shit yeah and i will say but i like that whole you know arc they have there with the bombings and reeling from that something else like that needed to happen in the last third of the season like something fisk would do that is big and reprehensible yeah like another like sort of big turning point yeah which we never get it's just he kills elena miss cardenas which is bad but uh, i'm gonna build some buildings it's kind of it so but it's okay um, yeah. I mean it's part of the problem with like portraying the Kingpin's plan as being totally despicable is that it's a little like it's it's not super dramatic like it's awful and it's a totally realistic like real world concern that totally happens with real estate but it, yeah it's like it's hard to make like the str- like tenement struggles the super dramatic right. compelling plot point you know yeah Alright, but I think those comfortably are the best three of the season. And yeah. Well, I don't know. Nelson it's, versus Murdoch is yeah, really Nelson good. Yeah, Nelson versus Murdoch is really good. There's also, I think it's episode three is the one with the dude, like the bowling ball guy. That one's good. That yeah. I really, I just really like that guy. Like, I that thought, like, good. they built him up as a really compelling single episode villain. It's like, just kind of like, just nameless thug, but he, I, I really like that guy. Alright, I got two questions before okay. we wrap this up. First off. Yes. Wilson Fisk or Loki? Go. I would personally say Wilson Fisk because one, I like Kingpin more from the comics, and I personally just I've always really liked Vincent D'Onofrio as an actor, so it's cool to see like that. He's just such great casting, and it's such a great interpretation of the character. Like I, I love Loki to death, but there's there's also something super gratifying for me personally to see this kind of villain, this sort of like classical kind of villain that I really love. That I feel like, especially the modern Stephen Moffat versions, have just been like completely fucking bastardized as these complete lunatics so i I like to see that charismatic interesting more humanistic version of that villain come back in some way and so i'm I'm throwing my hat in for kingpin all right um thing is i agree with all that and i think the achievement of kingpin is probably greater than the achievement of loki because loki is frankly an easier character to get right true especially in this day and age i think kingpin in the 80s i wouldn't bat an eyelash yeah, but, this, Lo- but Loki is a very modern kind of villain yeah. Kingpin is not but on some level I still do like Loki more just for the kinds of narratives we get out of him and, and yeah, some of the stuff really and, the, fun villain. and the interplay he just has with the other characters I kind of I like all of that um, 
but it's tough. They're definitely the best two Marvel villains yeah. so far. And it's and they're also like they so perfectly occupy their very different spaces because obviously, like you know, Loki would make no sense in a Daredevil kind of setting, and Kingpin would no, make yeah. no sense in like an Avengers kind of setting. That's like Loki is this very larger than life, over the top kind of villain that has a lot of like very human elements to him, and he's very sympathetic. But it's like you know he has that quality to him that like he's able to be the main villain in an Avengers movie, where it's like Kingpin has that sort of like very down to earth like human reality to him that makes him a very compelling villain for a TV show. You know, like I think Kingpin works best for a TV show format, whereas like Loki works best for a movie format, and the vice versa does not. I, I can agree with that. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, a question. This is not my second question, no, but okay. I just thought of it. Do you think it's a little weird they never called him Kingpin in 13 episodes? A little bit. Like, I was really glad that they never... Because they kind of, like, did the visual thing with it where, you know, Ben Yurik had his thing where he had the king card with a pin yeah. on it. I was so worried that that's where the name would somehow come from. That was like... It was an interesting visual, yeah. like, gimmick. That was like, as long as they leave, and they did just leave it as that, I was fine, but I was so worried that that would be like where the nickname came from. Yeah, it's like, it's something where there was no, I just feel like like there was no point in the show where he could start being called the Kingpin because they did the whole thing where he, which does something, is something from the comics where he comes out as a sort of like magnanimous businessman who's trying to like refurbish the city. And so it's like Kingpin, the Kingpin of crime is sort of a, a title that he gets I think traditionally from like a, like a headline that like Ben Yurik would have written about him. Again, Ben Yurik should have published that article. Yeah, for the Daily Bugle. Yeah, for whatever. Yeah, it's too bad. If they, I wonder if Daredevil were being made right now, if they could have just called that the Daily Bugle. Yeah, and done that. But oh well, and then they could have gotten J.K. Simmons, Simmons on. as J. Jonah Jameson. Like, can you imagine like Ben Yurik and fucking J. Jonah? It would have been uh, great. They're, like them butting heads. It's a missed opportunity. Yep. Fuck it, I think J. Jonah Jameson would have been on board with it. Smearing a business magnate? Yeah, Let's I go mean, for it. I mean, that's basically, like, Ultimate Spider-Man straight up just does that storyline with Ben Urich and, like, J. Jonah Jameson yeah. and him, like, fighting to get Kingpin, like, recognized as being the fucking Kingpin of crime and not, like, a big businessman. Yeah. All right. So my second question. All right. What do you want to see from season two? Um, like, like I said earlier, I would, even though I don't know enough about Daredevil to know what kind, I mean, obviously Bullseye is a big villain, but he can't be a season-long antagonist. So it's like, I don't know, like, what villain to bring in as an antagonist for season two, but I want them to bring in something new for season two as, like, a big focal point. And, like, I guess, like, there's, like, I think they hit on something really strong here with season one that, like, you know, obviously we both agree that it really fumbled the ending, but, like, I feel like there are, like, directions that they have to move forward with the characters. Like, obviously, we, they need to figure out what to do with Karen moving forward. But, like, yeah, I'm super excited to see what they're going to do with these characters in another season. And, like, like what, like, the ideas they, they can have for, like, for another sort of, like, season-long arc and, like, new ideas and a new villain and something new for these characters to tackle. Fuck it. I want, King, I want Bullseye all 13. He's the bad guy, and he's played by Colin Farrell again. Yeah. Fuck it. <laughs> I'm just... I mean, because there is, like, you know, the the other big era of Daredevil that I'm more or less cognizant of is that, like, you know, Bullseye and Elektra and, like, that stuff. Like, that's obviously, like, a big... Especially with them having that weird, like, ninja thing with stick, like, just yeah. kind of, like, hanging. That feels like that's kind of where they're leaning towards. And that could be very interesting to see, like, you know, that. And, like, I want to see, like... Karen absolutely has to find out about Matt being Daredevil early on in Season yes. 2. Like... I'm not necessarily really mad that she didn't find out at the end of season one somewhere, but like, 
It just felt to me like that's where we were going, and yeah. we didn't go. It there. would feel, but it would feel really weird if Foggy knew and Karen did not know. Like, like she doesn't have to find out episode one, but like, if that's like at episode like ten, eleven, or twelve in the second season, this is Karen finding out. I think that would probably be a really bad idea. In fact, I think episode one might be the right place to do it because that's something that could kick off the season. Yeah, it I would mean, be a good yeah, yeah. And you would mirror it back to she is the focal point of episode one. Period. Too. Yeah. But, no, okay, seriously, though, I don't want Colin Farrell's bullseye again. Colin Farrell's a good actor, but yeah. not in that part. Um, who knows? Maybe he comes in and does subtle bullseye. Yeah. And he redeems himself. He's like, guys, I really, I, I know how to do it. They didn't let me do it. Yeah. But, no, anyway. They um, should have Ben Affleck come in and play, like, an alternate universe Daredevil that Daredevil has to fight, <laughs> like, Nega Daredevil. Anyway, um, what I really want, though, I would like a little less serialization in season two. Like, mm-hmm. I think having that thrust was good, but one of the weird things is, how do Matt and Foggy pay for their fucking office building? They have one client, total, sure. whole season. I think, especially now that he Technically, is, Karen was one of their clients, and the weird bowling ball dude was also one of their clients. Okay, I don't think they get paid from any of these people. No. So, something, Daredevil is like Robin Banks on the side, or something, and yeah. we just don't see it. He's, he's talking about it in confessional, but we're not hearing it. Anyway, I would like to see a little more of that day-to-day, what does their law practice yeah, look a, like? Yeah, that's a good point. And now that he's Daredevil, I'd like to see a little day-to-day, like just small episode-by-episode villain. Like, yeah, that's a good, strong direction for season two. So, so all right, you guys have not heard this. That's like the fifth time. You, you, just won't, you won't hear this, but our yeah. audio software has frozen like six times during this recording. So, I think we better call it quits while we're ahead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Daredevil Season 1, very good. Yeah. I'm sure there's more to look forward to. And this does make me very excited for the Jessica Jones series and Luke yeah. Cage and all these. They found a good home on Netflix to do some of these heroes. Yeah, it's a really compelling format for like these smaller, like not you know super sci-fi, larger-than-life kind of heroes. But you can get Daredevil in there. You can get Power Man in there. You can get yeah these smaller heroes that really need that serialized format to really make them work. Yep, and uh, the Jessica Jones cat, uh, show has a great cast, like yeah. David Tennant, Kristen yeah. Ritter. I'm looking forward to that. But anyway, we will get there when we get there. And in terms of podcast scheduling, I'm just going to say right now, I'm not confident we're going to have an episode next week because yes, that's... crazy, crazy shit. And it obviously the topic for next week, the obvious one would be Avengers 2. I think there's another pre-Avengers 2 topic we could do. If we have some time to record it, we will try. Uh, other than that, it might be two weeks, and when we come back, if it's if it's two weeks, we'll obviously talk Avengers too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we'll go from there. Lots lots of stuff this summer. Um, that's that's the big one. So a couple Marvel weeks in a row here. But yeah, yeah. So have fun. Be safe with the you know millions and millions of people who are going to go see Avengers two. Don't get trampled. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck man, Avengers two is right on the horizon. Yes. So we'll see. Um, yeah. Well. I guess we better get back to, you know, protecting Hell's Kitchen and all that shit. What? Exactly.